Hello, welcome to another episode of James Bond and Friends. Um, this week, James Bond has been calling Felix Leiter to apologize for that time that Felix came into his hotel room and he punched him in the stomach to not say 007. Because <laughs> apparently it's cool to do that now, um, especially if you're in Spain or Italy. So I'm your, I'm your fill-in host, James Page from MI6, and this week we're watching Goldfinger, finally. Um, I think this is like number 22 out of 24 or something, so we got there eventually. This week, we're joined by the usual crew, Lisa, David, Bill, Ben, Phil, and Calvin. Would you like to introduce yourself, guys? Ooh, I'm number one. Uh, my name is Dr. Lisa Funnel. I am an associate professor at the University of Oklahoma. I am the author of The Geographies, Genders, and Geopolitics of James Bond with Klaus Dodds. I am editor for His Eyes Only, The Women of James Bond. And I am drinking a Dirty Shirley cocktail. <laughs> I found cherry brandy. I don't know how I got it. It's like my liquor cabinet. I don't know where stuff shows up from. Uh, but I Googled and I found I had recipe stuff. So it's pretty yummy. An apt for Shirley for this movie. Cool. Yep, David Lee here. Sorry, I forgot who I was for a moment. <laughs> uh, I run the James Bond dossier. I am powered by... Well... I do think it should be uh, mint julep night tonight, but I've gone for rum and coke instead. Uh, it's the, the old faithful. I'm Bill Koenig, and I'm with the blog The Spy Command, and I have some Goldfinger reference material at the ready for this watch-along. And since the uh, bourbon in Branchwater is splendid in Kentucky, according to Bond, I have Maker's Mark on the Rocks. The archive has been prepared. <laughs> Open the tomb. <laughs> All right, this is Phil from Fangoria. How's everybody? Uh, I just want to say that the the toweling playsuit was a Halloween costume. It was not. It was not. It, you know what? It is. It. No, I'm not it, wearing it. <laughs> it's uh, it's not October 31st. I wore it to one Halloween party. It is cozy, but uh, you know what? It's hard to get into and out of and to zip it up without assistance. <laughs> well, I guess that's a good excuse. <laughs> it's hard to get talcum up over powder. shoulders. Yeah, talcum, talcum powder. powder. <laughs> no, I need to be double-jointed to get those that shoulders in. I don't know. Yeah, I need a dink. Hi, uh, I'm Ben Williams. Uh, I write for MI6HQ.com and MI6 Confidential Magazine. And I'm Calvin Dyson, and I have a YouTube channel where I talk about all things Bond, uh, movies, games, books, uh, and the like. And today I'm drinking a Jack Daniels and Coke. Jack Daniels, of course, not being a bourbon. Uh, but Judy Dench <laughs> drinks it in Goldfinger, which is another Bond film that has gold in the title. So there is a... Judy Dench is in Goldfinger? Oh, shit. Yeah, I think... Oh, Golden Eye. God, oh, damn it. Golden Eye. Yeah. Right. And, and Bond... You're a Bond, Bond expert. Oh, I know. And, and Bond was too polite to uh, correct her when he asked for a bourbon, and she she gave him a jacket. <laughs> well, May, Maybaum had passed away during the scripting, so we didn't get Bond, quote, you know, parentheses, ever the expert. Uh, Ma'am, that's not a bourbon. That's Jack Daniels. <laughs> <laughs> I don't mean to give you shit, Calvin. It's just funny making an error, correcting an error. We could, we could be here all day. Yeah, <laughs> no. I'm sorry. We're, re we're recording this uh, the day after the uh, latest trailer for No Time to Die came out. So I'm a bit tired and a bit hungover. So I might be making yeah. a lot of uh, errors that I will need to correct on during this watch along. <laughs> it's okay. Um, well, as it's 
eleven fifty in the morning for me and Ben. I'm having a cup of tea. But, um, <laughs> made that. Cup of mud. James, James is having the anti-bond drink since, uh, right. like somebody already said, tea is mud. Uh, yeah. Which a reference from the Goldfinger novel. Very good. Yeah. Yeah. See, but, but there's one difference between James and Ben. Uh, James has just got up a few hours ago. Ben has not right. to bed yet. It's a late, it's a late <laughs> one for Ben. <laughs> All right. Everybody lined up for this one? Yeah. Um, close as I can get it. Honorary line this week is Phil, because he's yet to do one of these, and we don't have nominations anymore. So. Hold on. Hold on. <clears throat> okay. Let me clear my throat a little bit. You ready? <clears throat> yeah. All right. Here we go. Goldfinger, everybody. In three, two, one. Play. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's cheating. <laughs> I nailed it. Super nailed talented. It. <laughs> so this this was the first Bond movie shown on U.S. television in September 1972, and it, on ABC they promoted it all summer. And when it came time to show it, they cut out the gun barrel. They played the gun barrel music, but they cut out the gun barrel. Why? And I because have no blood? idea why. I guess <laughs> it was so bizarre. So in this like uh, this this long shot here at this complex they're playing the the gun barrel music in the abc version mm. they, they also cut out a line later in the movie where goldfinger talks about the number of u.s traffic deaths in a year and because apparently there was a one of the car companies was one of the lead sponsors on the broadcast yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so they whack that line out i don't want to hear that shit <laughs> yeah. i just want to like give a shout out to the production design on this because it just this first sequence because you know they have the wide shot of the big uh, the tanks and then it cuts to like a little studio set of the the you know the duck suit and then you get what must be only like a twelve foot section of the wall that they built so they could put the little swingy door in and then you go bam and then you're inside the set from Ken Adams somewhere on Pinewood and nowadays how would they do that they'd probably just like build build the whole thing and CGI the tops on or something. Um, but this is back in the day when you know they they kept the budgets tight and production zones great on this. Uh, got another example of you know Ken Adams circling the ceiling and this this instantly gets you into Bond's world even though we're in the middle of like a, a tank. It's a pretty somewhere. Spartan uh, opium silo. Yes, <laughs> that, that hosts a lot of nitroglycerin with with the names on the tanks. Bond's hands are quite dirty in this sequence. I guess later when he shows up at the Katina, he washed them off somewhere en route. I've, I've heard this bar called the El Scorpio bar. Is that for just from the script or did I miss a sign or? I've never heard that film. It was something I read recently. I'll, I'll find it, but watch this carnation out of nowhere. Boom. <laughs> right. And, uh, and Arnold Schwarzenegger stole that bit in uh, True Lies. Oh, I like True Lies. Well, I'm, I'm, I'm not. I'm not no, criticizing no, the film. That was me they clearly, <laughs> they clearly, like, they, they clearly did a quote homage to that oh, bit. Yeah. If you prefer that phrasing. 
No, no, no. I, I, I wasn't disagreeing with what you're saying. That was just me like yeah. realizing how much I like true lies as a movie. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> oh, and this uh, woman was uh, Nadia Reagan, however it's mm-hmm. pronounced. She was in From Russia with Love as one of uh, Dark uh, Karim's paramours, the one that uh, inadvertently saves him from the explosion from the mine against the wall. What's her name? Salt Mine. <laughs> so, well, speaking of names getting wrong, we should just clear it quickly that he's not Ali Karim Bey from Russia. If it's a, she says Hadi Karim Bey, Hadi Karim Bey, which is Turkish for come here. Yeah. So it's been wrong. You're getting wrong to this day. Yeah, she passed away recently and she didn't, she was halfway through her memoirs and didn't finish them. Mm. Quitter. <laughs> <laughs> is that a Swedish flag? Is that a Swedish flag or just a coincidence in the background? <clears throat> I don't know. That's that's a good question. I don't know. Well, Stars and Stripes magazine, which is a U.S. forces um, publication, visited Pinewood for the filming of this um, sequence, and they reported that the stuntman um, Alf Joint they they kept having to glue his mustache back on because it kept falling off during the <laughs> fight sequence. And at one point, Connery got apparently a bit too into it and really twisted Alf Joint's foot too much in one of the uh, stunts causing him to scream out in pain and Connery was holding his hands up like oops my bad but apparently Guy Hamilton was kind of like cheering him on (laughs) now this is supposedly Connery's first full hairpiece in the Bond series I I think he went to a full hairpiece with Marnie but uh, I keep I keep uh, meaning to like look into starting a hairpiece as a Sean Connery site but don't really have the time but I wonder how bad that would smell uh, pretty bad <laughs> be pretty rancid at that mm-hmm. point. in fact he'd probably reek of it when he got to the right? airport uh, okay so we're in the titles and just a real quick note I've made mention before about how there was that 1994 official James Bond convention in Los Angeles the night before they showed this film at the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences and Peter Hunt and John Steers were in the audience because they were going to be at that convention the next day and so when their title cards pop up they um, the audience gave them a nice round of applause it was you know it was a nice moment Aww. I thought you were going to say they jumped up and said, it's me. (laughs) (laughs) They're too British for that. (laughs) So any thoughts uh, on both the imagery that we see here with the projection of images on the golden woman's body and or the song itself? Gold finger. Well, real quick, you refer to her as the golden woman. People refer to her as the golden girl. And it's because of the song, because I, listen to it again prior to the watch along and that phrase is like stuck and and well it's like i don't think they would do it now would they i mean given uh everything it would be a golden woman and that doesn't really um scan as well for songwriting purposes does it in the 1960s it was considered acceptable to refer to a young woman not yet 30 as being a girl and it's all over culture at the time. And I'll give you one real quick one. Um, 
Marvel rebooted with the Fantastic Four in 1961, and their female member was referred to as the Invisible Girl, even though she was clearly supposed to be an adult. And it wasn't until the 80s they finally got around to changing it to the Invisible Woman. So, but it was all over the place in the 60s. I'm not. I'm not defending it. I'm just Mm -hmm. you know explaining it. I wonder how many times this has been riffed. You know, oh. since Pranjan did this. I mean, it must be hundreds of I'll, times. I'll, I'll tell you, one of the Music first videos ones, and stuff. One of the first ones was in 1965 in the U.S. TV situation comedy, The Beverly Hillbillies, when uh, Jethro, the sort of man-child of the cast, saw Goldfinger, rushes home, talks to, you know, to his Uncle Jed, played by Buddy Epson, recites the plot of Goldfinger, <laughs> and he's like so excited. He is, you know, Jethro has found his life calling. He wants to be a quote, double knot spy, unquote. And he's hmm. explained the plot. And then Jed Clamp says, why don't you just shoot him? That might be the very first time. Why doesn't he just shoot him? I mean, because <laughs> Austin Powers like minted that like 30, more than 30 years later. It's like, you, I mean, you can find, yeah. I mean, Welcome there were parodies the- then. <laughs> I, I, I love I love the music that this opens with. It's just uh, it's a great score from John Barry. So, so to least to answer your question, anybody does anybody rank it as one of the best songs? Because I'm I'm one of those people that think it's kind of eh. In 2006, when, they, when the BBC impressive. did when B, when BBC did that special where they ranked the songs, it was based on a public opinion survey in the UK. It came in as number one. The, well, it, uh, that's the that, I think a lot favorite, of that's yeah. just like it's just like name a Bond song. I mean, it's just like <laughs> I, to, Matt, to, I, to be honest, uh, I have no idea how what I think of it. I've heard it so many times. Um, uh, I annoy my wife uh, just singing the Goldfinger bit around the house sometimes. And uh, is that when you're sweeping up? You just like yes. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say I think I prefer the whistled version in Majesty's Secret Service to the uh, Shirley Bassey one. I'm I'm with you, James. It's a bit too uh, brassy for my ear. I like a, a lot of other elements of this score. That Into Miami bit that David just pointed out, I think, is lovely, and I listen to that quite regularly. But the main song, I'm I'm not a fan of. Yeah, I I I, I don't know about the the main song at all. I I, I just um, don't know. But the rest but, of it. So yeah. so real quick, um, we're seeing. Uh, it's going to close this out this week. Close this out. We're seeing Cease Linder as Felix Leiter for the first time, and now, right now, we're at you know Pinewood. But Cease Linder was the only actor that actually went to Miami for the Miami shoot. Um, you know, because we saw him at the Real Hotel. You know, right after the the diver went into the pool, and um, we'll see later. There, there will be. Other Florida bits. <laughs> Other Florida things. Yeah, Florida doubling for Kentucky later in the film. And again, the only actor you can see is him. Um, so again, he's the only person who actually went to Florida among the principal cast. It, it, everybody else were like stand-ins, doubles, whatever. You got to wonder, um, was it like, well, I've got Cease Linda on the phone and uh, he's in Miami this week. Do you want to hire him? And then it's just like, oh, well, that's, yeah. that's convenient. Because um, uh, does anybody know like the story of why they even cast him? Well, and, and, and this came up on a podcast last year and someone and people said, why did they replace Jack Lord with this older guy? And it's like, this guy is actually three months younger than Jack Lord was. <laughs> um, 
C. Slender was born in March of 1921. Jack Lord was born in late December of 1920. So, huh. I mean, he, I mean, you know, he looks older than Jack Lord, but well, um, I'd say like the average 40 year old in 1960 looks different to the average 40 year old in 2020 as well. Mm-hmm. Sure. Oh, absolutely. Can I just, before we just totally move past uh, this scene, just highlight the man talk line that happened where you have yeah. a character named Dink who is literally just like hushed, turned around, man talk happens, hit her on the bottom and push her away. She's oh, and, and, and and by the way, she was the woman in the titles. Mm-hmm. Margaret Nolan. Any thoughts on on that? It's never sat well with me. Just throwing it out there, like it's, no, it's okay to say like we we have to talk about business. We'll meet up with you rather than like man talk. Um, hey ben, this, you know this what? Is how you got um, into my hotel room, wasn't it, Ben? The uh, <laughs> you know what? Similar attitudes were in the uh, TV show Mad Men, which of course yeah. was set in the '60s. Um, yeah, it's you know, it's there. It's there. Yeah. <laughs> it's uh, here's a set that you see for all of like four seconds, five seconds. Bond walking through Goldfinger's suite, and this is the. Uh, First and last time you'll you'll get this one. Maybe it's just a redress of a set that they use later on for Bond's room. Meanwhile, I was thinking about this while I was watching this sequence earlier before the we started recording. So, like Bond is being incredibly reckless in this sequence mm-hmm. because in the novel, he was in a layover. You know, he was flying back from South America because the the pre titles is loosely based on something described in the novel, and his flight gets canceled. He's going to have to try and stay the night, and he runs into one of the baccarat players from Casino Royale. And it turns out he's the guy who's getting cheated by Goldfinger at cards. I think they're playing canasta rather than gin, but regardless. And so it it's it's that guy's it's Mr. Dupont. It's his idea to you know he, you know he talks Bond into staying, and he takes him to a meal where they drink incredible amounts of alcohol. I get I get hung over just reading the chapter. Um, so anyway, the whole reason Bond you know, breaks up the cheating is because, you know, he's not on a mission and he's been hired by Mr. DuPont to, to look into this. Whereupon here in the movie, it's just, I just feel like doing the hell of it. I, you know, this guy has something to do with the mission, but I'm just going to like, I'm going to screw him over just, just because it's fun to do. So question, is it Jill Masterson or Jill Masterton? It's, Master Sun here and Master Tun in the book, isn't it? Or is it the other way around? Yeah. Yeah, I think that's right. But but I'm not always, uh, sometimes I get confused. And why do you think that is? I used to hear stories about like they would have to do script clearance and they found Um, out that so and so with that name lived in a city and they didn't want to. Apparently it was a Richard Maybom typo. Yeah, oh. I, I, I was. Oh. I, I didn't. I didn't know that, but I was going to say it wouldn't surprise me if somebody just mistyped it. Yeah, apparently Richard Maybaum typoed the name and it stuck. Hmm. It does that, I believe that more than the whole "Tomorrow Never Lies" typo story. Yeah, yeah. Because Masterson's easier to say anyway. So yeah. part of the reason Connery couldn't go to Miami was because he was still working on Marnie. Um, so. Obviously, this is rear projection. Um, when he's walking around the hotel, outside the hotel, it's rear projection. But, um, and, well, here we go. Um, oh, and here's some trivia. The radio announcer that uh, is briefly heard is a character actor by the name of Les Tremaine. He was like the auctioneer in North by Northwest. That, you know, 
Huh. Part of that. I mean, he was in lots of things in the U.S. Um, how he got this job, I don't know, since this was a London-based production, but it's clearly his voice. Hmm. Even just, you know, he reads two sentences, but it can just tell. I was digging up the original, uh, some original Goldfinger publicity, and um, Connery does a couple of interviews, which we dug out from 64 whilst shooting, and he makes it quite clear that the reason that they did this film was to appeal to U.S. audiences. Hmm. To crack mm. the U.S. market, that was the producer's decision. Hmm. That's interesting. Well, coming soon to my confidential issue, issue fifty-six. <laughs> well, meanwhile, this was one of the hardest novels to uh, adapt because there were a number of structural issues involved. Hoping the flipping of this book isn't too audible. Um, Side my headset. Sorry, I got to get to S for. Sc- I got to get to S for screenplay, but uh, let's see. It's um, after R for Rolls Royce and uh, before T for Tanya Mallet. Well, that's okay. So, um, so this is a, a passage from a memo that Maybaum wrote to uh, Broccoli and Saltzman on April thirtieth, night. April 30th, 1963. As you know, there are lots of problems. Not enough action for Bond in the early part, and not enough love stuff. So we'll have to do some inventing. Also, the whole lighter business is not very satisfactory, merely pulling him in at the end during the ambush at Fort Knox. However, with some with these areas covered in some way, I think we can essentially keep the book. Mm. Um, it always annoyed me that our job didn't close the fridge. <laughs> not not well he's impolite he's a thug yeah maybe i had a drink maybe that was maybe like, yeah. Yeah. Job took one <laughs> he's obviously at this painting thing for a while yeah, yeah that's right <laughs> so, um, yes. ben's gone wobbly um all right, so here's play play at home along, kids. Um, can anybody name music video that featured a dead, golden painted girl as part of the plot? Oh, what decade? Eighties. Oh gosh. Huh. Eighty-three. Eighty-three. Are we? Are we? Are they um, adjacent? I'll give you a clue. Um, they're indestructible. Oh, 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 it wasn't Spandau Ballet, was it? Yeah. Yeah. Ah. Gold. <laughs> Calvin oh. for the win. Hey, youngest <laughs> one here who was not alive. <laughs> he was not alive, okay? Huh. It, it, it's one of my partner's favorite songs, so we listen to it quite a bit. I've never actually seen the music video. That's, it's terrible, uh, but it's oh. got a gold girl in it. Uh, Interesting. A video idea, Calvin. Yeah, there we go. Can we just talk just briefly about the scene of the golden woman um, who's been asphyxiated in terms of gold paint? Um, I know that this image has become pretty sort of iconic in the world of Bond. If you look at the 50 years of Bond posters, it's a golden woman. Um, Those Funko Pops, whatever they're called. the, The first woman figurine that came out was simply the golden woman. 
Yes. Like yeah. I, I, I raged about that when of it came course. out. Like, really? like you, there's so many women to pick, but you decide to pick. But anyways, there's something about her that has sort of filled a popular imagination. And I'm just wondering your thoughts on the golden woman um, and her positioning within the world of Bond. Well, it was definitely iconic because uh, the Signet paperbacks published in the U.S. in the 60s right. had, had the image of the, the golden woman. It was like it was like the dominant image, and then there's like a little um, smaller images below her of the of Goldfinger's Rolls Royce being followed by uh, Bond in the Aston Martin DB3. Um, well, one one thing I'll, I'll say about her is that the the treatment of her in the film is quite different to the book because in the book. Uh, she it, she is painted gold, and then she, she she's a, a Goldfinger's companion, or I, I I can't remember exactly what what she, uh, what she's supposed it's, to do. And it's a kink. Yeah, yeah. And right. Uh, it, sorry. I said it's his kink. He paints. She. Yeah, yeah, he paints yeah that's right. He, absolutely. Yeah, it's, it's, it, it, it is. It is his kink. He paints a gold, so he's got a, a golden in, woman. He's got a golden girlfriend, and and, and, it, and it's just and a, fact, her, sp- her spine isn't painted so that her skin can breathe. It's just right. when when he gets fed up with her, or she double crosses him, or, or she, no, she, does she double cross him? I can't remember. Yes, the, she does. In the novel, there's been a series of these. In she other words, she, she, yeah, she is. She is like just the latest. This uh-huh. having painted a woman gold thing was done multiple times in the novel. I mean, it's only it's mentioned in passing, but it it was it was obviously a fetish doesn't even begin to describe it <laughs> obsession so, so um, it, it, the the origins of it weren't uh, to to kill her even yeah. though uh, it ended up killing her because they because she did something and, and her, her spine was painted as well so her skin couldn't breathe and so she died um, yeah, and just it, like every time you have a bath, you die because your yeah. skin can't breathe. It's complete bullshit. Yeah. Also, in the novel, Bond finds out about her death later. It's yeah. like he's told about it. Yeah. Whereupon here, he witnesses. Yeah, you know, because it's too, it's too uh, irresistible a visual for the film to pass up uh, engaging right. in, I think. But because, in, in fact, no, right now my memory is starting to work a bit. It's the rum having an effect. It's because. <laughs> After, um, after, after she helps Bond double cross Goldfinger in Miami, uh, they take the train to New York, I think it is, and yeah. and uh, Bond demands that he has champagne and caviar and all this kind of stuff, and and so uh, both of them manage to piss Goldfinger off quite a bit. <laughs> so when he gets up, when Goldfinger catches up with her, he kills her, and that's how he how he kills her. And right. I think he finds out from uh, Tilly in the book. Yeah, mm-hmm. right. Yes, that's right. Yep, absolutely. Yes. Now, switching gears on the uh, Criterion commentaries, the quote band commentaries right. that got stripped off the laser disc. Yeah, Peter don't Hunt, waste your time with this one. Cause... Peter Hunt was pretty clearly not a Guy Hamilton fellow. Um, <laughs> he, of course, was a Terrence Young guy, and uh, you know his comments are separate from Guy Hamilton's and, and there's a lot of oh they filmed this bad I had to fix it and all this stuff I mean right. you just reading between the lines you know you could sort of sense like 
I don't think Guy, I don't think Peter Hunt was too happy with Guy Hamilton. But. He says it about the start of this dinner scene, like because the camera starts in on the characters and then pulls out, you know, yeah. so that it, it you know extends across the dinner table. And Peter was like, "Oh, it should have been the other way around. It should have been, you know, coming into the characters." But he's like, oh, "Okay, Peter, <laughs> right, it's fine." In, in, that in, in fact, this this dinner scene is what reminded me of those those commentaries, and it, yeah. and I think there's some other things later, but in particular, that scene was like, yeah, you get. Unfortunately, most of that commentary is just reading bios of the actors as they appear on screen. <laughs> but um, it's funny that Hunt had that opinion of Hamilton when it was Terence Young that left him in the deep end on his movies. <laughs> Maybe fix, he right? likes that. I, I, you know, he's obviously wanting to direct. So he obviously would go on to do it. Uh, and I, I do get the sense. I mean, the editing here is certainly not. You know, there's far less jump cuts and uh, it's better editing and all that kind of stuff here. I, I feel no, like Hamilton. And what was that, Terry James? No, no horizontal wipes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, I feel like Guy Hamilton maybe had a you know a better sort of visualization of what he was wanting to achieve on the set, you know, into the final product than uh, Terence Young. Uh, well, meanwhile, here's the DB5 making the its first appearance, but they had they had a in the scripting process they went through this to a BMW. They went through they went through a number of cars in the scripts as to what should Bond's car be. So at one point it was going to be a Bentley. Like yeah. Where you know it was a DB3 in the novel, so it makes sense it'd be a DB5, but it wasn't that easy <laughs> coming up with a car and and I think Aston Martin was kind of hesitant at first to Provide cars. Imagine in the multiverse. In the multiverse, we've got a Bentley racing around Matera. <laughs> yeah. Oh God. Yeah. Yeah. And Fleming made a mistake because it, it wasn't a DB3, which was actually a racing car. It was a DB Mark III, which was a road car. Yeah. yeah exactly. Um, yeah, I did obviously did a quite a lot of research on this because of the the article that I, I, I was writing, um, and I, I I did another kind of piece on the the, the history of this this particular car. Um, being that, that it is the prototype DB5 as well, and so it's very technically the bridging gap between the DB DB4 and the DB5. There are actually some elements of this car that aren't present on the final DB5. Um, some some small styling uh, elements. Um, but it, quick shout yeah, out it to is, that article, though, Ben. That's a fantastic piece of detective work <laughs> you did in that article. I really enjoyed that. In uh, uh, I, I the was way, I was very fortunate. That, uh, to, in that Beverly Hillbillies uh, parody, uh, Jethro converted their old truck to be his quote spy car, and he uh, he for for a bulletproof screen he had a metal tub you know, like pulled a rope metal tub came over him said you know he's like showing it off to his uncle Jay said well that's fine boy but how do you see out of that thing embarrassed silence I haven't worked that out yet and uh, but of course he put did put in an ejector seat that looked incredibly fake but you had to have an ejector seat for <laughs> Jethro's spy car yeah I mean it's in- it's interesting they went the, they did it actually approach uh, Jaguar as well um, for the um, for their car because well, um, remember in the book the, it was like it was, exactly. Bond went to the he motor pool choose. and he and he was picking yeah. between a Jaguar and an Aston Martin and he decided yeah. the Aston Martin better suited his cover so like Enterprise Renica, he's walk the aisle, pick one out. <laughs> well, so that was kind of my point. It was, <laughs> it was my my point was yeah, exactly. It was it was kind of like uh, the uh, the art imitating or life imitating art, I should say. Even though they were, they were duplicating the book, 
those that same choice happened in the film, um, and uh, they were very close, I think, to uh, to, to getting the Jag. Ken Adam um, actually uh, had an E type himself, so it was kind of an interesting. Um, and I believe in the book, so. Goldfinger just had a regular caddy, someone who was obviously in on his cheating, but uh, he did not have mm-hmm. an odd job walking around in the course in a suit and bowler so hat. This is my favorite odd job story. Because um, obviously for this cheating scene, they had to cut holes in his pockets um, for the golf ball to drop out. Um, and after they f- filmed it, they went to the Pinewood Bar and um, he went to buy Guy Hamilton a drink and put the change in his pocket. Uh, <laughs> out they fell all over the floor. <laughs> oh, dear. Can I just throw in two points? First of all, I have, I have a question, but I also have a story about golfing. So I want us to talk about Oddjob as a hench person because I actually really like Oddjob and I think he's probably one of the most compelling ones. But just my sidebar story. So when I teach my gender and James Bond class, one year I had a student who was not paying attention to me. So when students like really in your in class, really looking at their computers, they're watching something other than me. I'm not that entertaining. Um, and so the students were doing group work and I, I kept like wondering, what is he looking at? So I walked over and the student was actually watching golf. Some tournament was on. I couldn't tell you which one it was. And I said to the student, I'm like, you know, you're not permitted to watch outside materials in class. He's like, but James Bond golfs. And so I'm really trying to stay true to James Bond. We're talking about and I looked at the student and I was like, carry on. Like I had no course for the student where I was like, you know what? You gave me a really good argument. And I'm just like, you're being naughty and I know it, but like, I can't, I, there's nothing I can say to sort of contradict I'm, you. So I was like, I'm going to, I'm going to come to your class, Lisa, and smoke and drink. <laughs> real quick the way they handled the golf game in the film the novel it's like the longest fleming bond novel but it's like until quantum of solace this was the shortest bond film and it was because you know with the novel, you go through all 18 holes because Bond was, uh, Fleming was, you know, a golfer, a big golfer. <laughs> Fleming and, had some great tricks, didn't he, to pad his books out? I, I'm going yeah. to quote a chapter out of this other book. Um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, but take but, a week off. But here, it's like, okay, they established they're tied after 16 holes. So all we see are the last two holes. And so that, like, greatly condensed and streamlined the story and it tells you all you need to know about both bond and goldfinger i do and, love uh, um hawker bonds caddy here yes. I, uh, this is a very trivial sidebar but i just uh, I, I i like these sort of incidental characters in bond who are quite quite appealing in a lot of ways and nowadays i guess if he was in a film he'd probably have a character post uh release at some point <laughs> yeah. and, he'd be, and he'd be killed he was based on a real that's person if if that's his original ball, I'm Arnold Palmer, and it's like tisn't you know, but you know, it, yeah, it was like it was a nice line. At least the guy got like one good line. Yeah. I mean, my friends would ball. quote him all the time: "The ball you found, sir," and he yeah. he's a Slazenger <laughs> one. We would yeah quote him quite a lot in PE class. This is a Daniel Craig film. They'd find Hawker somewhere buried in the bunker. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So um, you'd, 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 we should t- talk about Gert Froh because um, whilst I'm on my Guy Hamilton stories, because he's got a lot of good ones, um, 
you know, he, his, his agent basically conned them into thinking he could speak English. I mean, that's been well documented, right? That, that, that's why they had to dub him when they thought about replacing him. But this, the story goes where um, he called up um, Mr. Uh, so he goes on the phone with Frobe and Hamilton's like, oh, you know, looking forward to having your set. And Frobe says, Mr. Hamilton, I look forward to working with you. And then Guy Hamilton says, how's the hotel? Mr. Hamilton, I look forward to working with you. <laughs> <laughs> well, also about Gert Frobe, I mean, I mean, no, these days, no one can imagine anyone but Gert Frobe playing the part. But they did test other actors. Uh, mm. Theodore Baikel was tested. They colored his hair blonde. And snippets of his screen test are on one of the uh, DVD extras. And then Maybaum recommended as far as i know he was never tested he recommended victor buono and specifically said yeah the guy's six foot four weighs 300 pounds you know he would have been good yeah and he of course ended up instead being in the first matt helm movie the silencers and in lots of tv shows in the 60s as as villains and spy shows well while i can imagine other actors playing bond i cannot imagine anybody else playing goldfinger well, that's where um, – when I read these behind-the-scenes accounts, when I can find stuff about how it could have gone – you know, if so, this had happened, that's where I find things really interesting because, you know, of course they would have tested other actors. But mm. like most of that stuff is kind of lost to the sands of time. But when you find bits about it, it's like, oh, that's oh, sure, 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 but I, I, I honestly can't. Some, some character, some characters in the Bond films, I think, uh, yeah. What if they've been played by this person or, or that person? But, but Goldfinger, no, I, I just can't, can't do it. I don't want an alternative universe with, with him played by another actor. I quite agree, and the voice is a huge part of it as well. And I think we probably all had that same sort of slightly stunned reaction when we found out that the, the voice is not the voice of uh, Gert Frobe; it's someone else. So obviously, Bond films do a lot of uh, looping after the fact, and often it's not the on-set recordings, uh, even for the actors that retain their own voices. But the voice just fits him so perfectly; it dubs so well. It's I saw this with a friend uh, a few months ago. It's not a bit of a Bond novice, I suppose, and she was astonished when. I told her that it's that voice does not belong to this man. No, I I, I couldn't believe it. I couldn't believe yeah. it when I first found out. Yeah, the trick was, I guess they told Gert Fro, whatever you say, just say it quickly, so that when the dubbing came in later, it would not be as obvious. Um, and it, and it is not. It's it's not like Kai Kai Cairo, for example, where, mm. where, where where the where the words don't fit the mouth movements at all, but. Uh, Okay, here's like he's crushing the golf ball. At least it looks messy. Because when we're talking about octopus, right. he's so like yeah. a powder that comes out. Yeah, yeah. So it's like it's messy and he's like having to shake his hand from all the goo <laughs> that was in it. Well, uh, inside a golf ball back in those days was just um, a concentric oh. kind of wrap of elastic bands. That's right. Yeah. Diamonds. It was diamonds. Diamonds. <laughs> Can I talk about my love of that maps? Then. Uh, just, you know, when James Bond is going to be driving and he's going to be um, uh, following Goldfinger, I just love the little map that is there that's, that's sort of following along. And I think that that conveys information. At the end of the road. <laughs> but I, I love the role that maps play in the world of Bond, especially the early films. And I think that that just gives us 
a sense of the geography of of it. I just I just love that the, I love the map in the car. It's like my favorite thing. I I'd, ne- I'd never heard of, about your love of the, of maps in the Bond films before. <laughs> <laughs> Goldfinger, Goldfinger invented Google Maps. <laughs> there, there is a Twitter yeah, called think. James Bond Maps, and huh? um. And he'll, he'll, like, what? Well, I'm like getting my phone. Well, he'll do. Well, he'll take stuff from the novel, like so. Okay, show you how Bond, like in the You Only Live Twice novel, how Bond got from London to Tokyo. I mean, it was like four or five flights, and you know, he shows you on a map how, how many connections he had to make. I mean, it's like you know, th- you know, because of course the books were written you know long before these big long-range planes and um anyway it, it, it's interesting just you know it kind of shows you what the world of bond fleming's bond was like yeah lisa you're more kind of into the art of the maps um yes. the style of, yeah having a green map as he's driving he's got this souped up car and i know that there's all those gadgets and i also think it's interesting that Q and Bond in the tutorial for the car, they spent so much time talking about the car. Whereas in later films, I think of like the spy who loved me, Bond just drives away and knows intuitively what to do. So I just find it interesting that like there's all this information about cars given to Bond, but it's the map that captures my attention that's just sort of sitting there. We're, we're, we're now seeing the very first introduction in any movie anywhere of the Ford Mustang because they would have been filming this while the Mustang was being actually introduced because it made its public debut in April of 1964 at the New York World's Fair. And uh, I, so I don't know if this is like a, an actual production car, maybe a prototype, maybe not a street legal car. used a uh, work in progress car. Yeah. I, 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 I thought it was um, a sh- uh, like, a, like a chassis, like a rolling chassis kind of situation, you know, where they, they put the bodywork over something else. That's what I, I don't know why I believe that. I thought it, it very well could be because, like I said, the actual car did not come out publicly until April of, right. of this year, and they would have been filming the movie at that time. Yeah. Um, and and, yeah, and it I, was I, actually pretty common in those days for like uh, for a, mo- a movie or TV show to have a non-street legal car, and the person having to drive the car in those cases had to be really careful because the brakes might not be the best and all this stuff. So. Well, in, in which in which case you've got two um, two cars in this one scene that are you know prototype cars essentially. You know uh, the Aston is a DB5. It is basically the prototype DB5. So therefore, you know it's it's two things that you would people just wouldn't see the kind of lending to the hyper realism of the of the film, I suppose. And and I just want to stress, I don't know if that's a prototype Mustang, but it wouldn't surprise me at all if that were, that was the case. So I, I want to see Bond drift his DB5. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yeah. With that, with it, that it rear axle, I've seen it I done in Italy. It. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah. 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 That's no, that's just you've got to have somebody in front of you spraying Coca Cola all over the floor. Now, <laughs> now this is. What we're seeing is a mock-up yeah. of a couple of uh, cars for that uh, Ben Hur-like. <laughs> for no seatbelt, no airbag. She does a wonderful job of not smashing her face. On <laughs> yeah. You know what? At, at the time this movie was made, I, I don't think seatbelts were required. No. 
in the wow. U.S. Like, oh hell, I, I was watching a Mission Impossible last night with Mr. Phelps going to get his mission. He's like driving a convertible, no seatbelts, no seatbelts. Jim, get seatbelts in your car. Yeah. yeah. Well, it, 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 I don't remember what year they were were compulsory in the U.K., but uh, I I would. I was a kid, so I remember when they were introduced, and so I imagine it was about the same time throughout Europe, so it must be the 70s. Imagine today if the government mandated some safety protocol on the population to help save their lives. Yeah, I know. An armed uprising. All right, yeah. I'm going to apologize for taking this to the side, but listen on the on the Batman TV show, they originally didn't have seatbelts, and then like the National Safety Council asked them, "Could you do? Could you show them?" So they like filmed an insert shot of Batman and Robin. It was just lap belts because there were there was they weren't didn't have three <laughs> three point belts at that point. Yep. So they they made they filmed and inserted an insert shot of them actually buckling seatbelts before the Batmobile roared off. So the sixties in, in the U S in any case was, that was when seatbelts were becoming a, a thing. Yeah. Cause I, I mean, I remember when they, they first used to have the, those ro- the roller seatbelts cause they used to be static, uh, you know, the three point uh, seatbelts that didn't roll and all that kind of stuff. God, uh, yeah, I'm old. <laughs> no, I'm right just there with you, David. As, um, we... oh, go on. No, go ahead, Tom. Yeah, I was just going to say before we move on from Tilly, I, I, I quite like this character, and I wish she was in the film a bit more. I like how disinterested she is in Bond. I suppose that's them sort of writing her as a lesbian, like she is in the book. Uh, but I think it's interesting that even this early on in the film series, they, uh, you know, show that Bond's sort of charms on the opposite sex don't always uh, work. Anyway. And I think you raise. I was just going to say, to, just for, for Calvin's point, I think you raise a really good point because the film and the novels very much diverge on the character of Tilly, whereas in the films, there's going to be an end point where she exits the film because she dies. But in the novels, I mean, she's there for a long period of time. And I believe, correct me if I'm wrong, has a relationship with Pussy Galore. Um, the two of them have a romantic relationship. And then near the end, she exits and then Pussy Galore is with Bob. She doesn't. She doesn't die in the novel until they like get to Fort Knox. Brilliant. Yeah, yeah, yeah. On the train or something. But yeah. how she dies is basically she, you know, Bond's sort of pulling her arm, saying, "Come this way," and she's like, "No, I want to she be with refuses. Pussy." She runs yeah. after Pussy, and then she gets. Yeah. I think she's caught yeah. in the crossfire, which is sort something of you know like Fleming's that. way of saying like, "Oh, well, if only she wasn't a lesbian, she would have lived through this." <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm not. I'm not sure. I'm not sure if she has a relationship with Pussy Galore, but uh, she's she is certainly interested in her. Yeah. Yeah, oh, a deep, deep friendship. She becomes at the very yeah. least. In the comic strip adaptation, she gets hit by our job's hat after the train. So that was the... okay. So, so we're now where um, we're now with Bond, like snooping around uh, Goldfinger's factory, and this um, they have to establish in the film, like in the novel, Bond, you know, says. Let me be your secretary. And Goldfinger says, okay. And like, you know, it's like, yeah. and, and like Maybaum and then later Paul Dane, like, going, this isn't going to work. And so part of this whole sequence is to establish why doesn't Goldfinger just kill him? Because that whole thing about why didn't you just shoot him? Both Maybaum and Paul Dane sweated bullets over this. It was like, you know, it's it, like I said, Austin Powers was a big joke, but they really, really worried about this. And um, 
Oh crap! I accidentally paused. Where are we at? Well, the the um, melting a car. Yeah, the the inconspicuous local population of Koreans in Austria. Yeah, yeah. What's the, what's the 52, minute count? Forty-two eleven. All right, I'm a little bit ahead. All right, anyway, so the whole purpose, or one of the main purposes of this scene, was to give Bond a reason to give him leverage over Goldfinger. And so he accidentally overhears the, the phrase Operation Grand Slam. He, he's he got something to hold over Goldfinger, even though he's like in dire straits with the laser beam coming at him. But, um, yeah, I mean, so this was, you know, basically a reason so they, you know, don't kill Bond just on the spot. It's it's like it's not it's obviously not realistic. I'm not even sure it's plausible, but it kind of within the within the flow of the story, it works. Can we talk you a bit what, about he, how? Oh, sorry, go on, James. I was going to say it's also good that he does some spying because yeah. <laughs> for the rest of the film from this point on, he is not in control. That's yeah. exactly what I was about to bring up. I was about to bring up sort of how inactive he is for the vast majority of this story. Uh, even here, he's not doing an awful lot. Uh, he, he, I think he sort of does two things in this film, which is sort of, uh, I guess, alert MI6 to Goldfinger by sleeping with Jill at the very start of the film. And then later on, he, you know, we'll get there, but he converts Pussy Galore to his uh, side of things, I guess, is a way of putting it. Uh, other than that, he doesn't... Maternal instincts. I yeah, think, there we the go. In the movie. But otherwise, he's very inactive passive, throughout passive. much of this. Because he thinks he can spy another day. <laughs> there you go. Oh, so, it's, um, uh, no time to spy. So we're, 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 we're not quite there yet, but I just wanted to read one more uh, excerpt from a from a Maybaum's memo. It was Maybaum's idea to get you know in the novel. It was a buzzsaw. Bond is approaching a buzzsaw, and so this is the phrase from Maybaum's memo to Broccoli and Saltzman: "The buzzsaw must go. It's the oldest device in cheap melodrama." It's comic by now. Instead, I am dreaming up a machine that which utilizes the new laser beam. It was featured in Life magazine. I visualize a demonstration of the beam showing it cutting through steel and then used as the buzzsaw was in the book. Steel finger. (laughs) Threatening to cut Bond in half. This out Fleming's Fleming. Quote, unquote. Yeah, I I don't think it needed to cut him in half. Well, I yeah. think it appealed to male fears of being castrated. <laughs> that was the whole point. <laughs> yeah, the, the, the bus the bustle wouldn't have worked at all. It, it, it's just uh, you, you you see it in cartoons, and it's just it's such a, a kind of uh, lunatic device. It, it, yeah. It, it, they it, recreated it, that. They recreated Fleming's scene for that BBC Two um, literary character TV show back in was the eighties. It's been kind of one of those lost to the archives. There's a couple of screen grabs from it, um, so, you know, where they recreated Bond on the table with with the buzzsaw, where they narrated it with the passage. We, we need to get that Lego Bond person to do, to do that. There you go. Yeah, yeah, rather than re, rather than redo rather than redo the movie scene for scene, they should do the books. Yeah, yeah. Except though, then you get Ian Fleming publications, and they may not be. Oh yeah, they take that stuff down. Yeah. Somebody did an animated graphic novel concept, and that got stripped down pretty quick. Oh, Brian, um, Brian Burnley. Um, yeah. Because back in the 
back in the old days of uh, Her Majesty's Secret Servant, um, I think this is when my blog was part of that. So it might have been part of a blog post, or I forget if it was part of the main site. But you know, Brian Burnley—that was the guy's name. He did some brilliant stuff, and like Ian Fleming Publications made him take it all down. And it was such a shame because it was so good, and it just—and it would—it would have created more interest in the books. But yeah, we don't care. Just make it a parody, and you can do anything you like. Um. We're not really talking much about uh, the, the John Steers' work on, on the, the car here. Uh, it has to be said it's pretty, pretty, pretty amazing stuff. Um, if I am at the same point, everyone else is a bit in the mood. Um, well, uh, Tanya Mallet's movie another group again. throughout the film now. Oh, okay. okay. We're, we're, just in, we're, we're just in um, the uh, credits. <laughs> <laughs> oh, 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 real a, a very quick trivia note. When... Uh, when when Bond was like telling uh, you know Tilly to make a run for it, he doesn't fire a PPK; he fired a P thirty eight. He fires. He only fires a P thirty eight through it. We interviewed her a few times. Uh, and, to your um, point. We interviewed her a yeah, few I've, times. Yeah, I've interviewed her. And, um... <laughs> go go, Ben. You tell us. Yeah, I've interviewed her. I was just going to say, yeah, no, it was it was just in reference to what Bill said about him having a P thirty eight. He only has the PPK in the um, pre title sequence, and he obviously doesn't fire it in there. Um, for the rest of the movie, he's armed with a P thirty eight, which is um, he takes from um, you know the baddies. He doesn't use his own personal weapon throughout throughout the film. Um, and just quickly on Tanya Mallet, um, she's very uh, she was a very kind of hard, uh, no bullshit kind of person. Um, I, have a, I had a lot of respect for her. I thought she was uh, uh, well, yeah. uh, well, she made a lot more money as a model than she did on this film. And it's like, uh, I'm, I've had enough of this stuff. I can make more money modeling. In an, in an afternoon. When yeah. She made yeah. yeah. Well, I, I guess both involve hanging around a lot of the time. And uh, uh, with the modeling, it's a kind of one-off and then you, you're gone and paid. Yeah. But um, her line was always like, if you're going to pick one film to make, why not be in Goldfinger? Right. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. No, I don't. She certainly, when I, when I spoke to her, she certainly had absolutely no regrets about her choices and um, you know, the decisions mm-hmm. that, that she, she made. Um, and also I would, would point out that um, she, she was very, she was very in charge of her, um, you know, her, her credits, etc. on this film. You know, she made sure that she got, um, what, not just a good payday, but um, you know that uh, she was featured on the poster. Um, and, uh, you know, yeah, and Shirley uh, Eaton's she, agent did an even better job, didn't he? Well, and, yeah. and also yeah. she, she was um, credited fourth on this movie. There, there was also this this great uh, publicity still that ran in Life magazine of of all three of the Bond women in this film. It was on the uh, Fort Knox set, and they're like they're all, all standing on top of a stack of supposed gold, and Connery's in the foreground with his hands up, and they all have guns aimed at him. And it's like it's one of the more striking <laughs> striking images of the movie. Related to the movie, I should say. Can we just give out, give a shout out to the grandma with the with the Tommy gun. Yeah. Who's more, Love who's her. More, 
Who's more um, effective than the whole of the Korean <laughs> henchmen? Uh, there, there, there's a rumor she was uh, Mrs. Bell's sister, but I don't know. <laughs> uh, yeah, ne- never underestimate a granny with a gun. <laughs> yeah. I love it. Yeah, it's fantastic. And I love Bond's uh, surprised reaction as well. It's, it's a good bit of humor. One of the things I like about uh, this whole sequence, um, and and Calvin will, I hope, um, agree with me. It's like, uh, you know, as, this is obviously two separate locations. We've got, you know, the, the, the exteriors were all like kind of long shots are all kind of Switzerland, and this is all, um, you know, the Pinewood back lot and, and studio system. And it's really interesting the way they intercut this to kind of create this very strange labyrinthine quality that doesn't match up with any of the shots that you've seen from the outside of it, it suddenly becomes this kind of very dreamlike, weird space for Bond to exist in. Um, I always find mm. that quite quite interesting. I completely agree, Ben. I think it's a really good, uh, you, you know, editing wise as well. Some of it is quite discombobulating, and you know, left to right, right to left. It's not, you know, they break the line here and there, and it's all good because mm-hmm. it builds towards that sense of confusion that you have, which leads to Bond eventually crashing. Guy Hamilton said on the Criterion commentary that he wasn't a fan of that. Uh, moment where the uh, bond is basically driving towards a mirror and he sees his own headlights reflecting and that's what causes him to uh, crash into the wall i think it's a perfectly a good um i may i'm not sure if it's like a trap set for him or if he's just a bit inept in that moment but uh, it, it's dramatic and it and it moves you through it yeah that's that's the key thing um yeah. Because again, in those days, no home video. It's like, you know, you're sitting in a theater and it's like the whole idea is like get you through stuff. And it's like if something's improbable, just get go through it as fast as you can before the audience can yeah. think about it. Mm. Oh, oh. Um trivia here. Mr. Ling, played by Bert Cook, who would later be in You Only Live Twice, but perhaps more famously as Cato in uh well began with A Shot in the Dark with uh, Peter Sellers' Inspector Clouseau. And um, he was born in... I only met him once. I I, I was at a... um, I was covering a convention for for the website and um, I I just happened to be outside and uh, Bert was out there having a fag um, looking Hmm. extremely dejected. And I said, um, um, by the way, for our audience, my, my in the context Ben right? said, that refers to a cigarette. Um, so we don't want to go to. Oh, yes, yeah. of course. He was, having, he was having a cigarette break. Sorry, I should. Because so, well, um, he was outside. Here in the US, it has a different meaning. I just want to make that clear. I don't want to get any. Very true. Complaint. I wonder what the hell you want about then, Bill. Yeah. I just thought you couldn't hear. <laughs> I was, no, but, yeah, no, of course. No, yeah, no. no, yeah, no. No, no. It's, uh, anyway, sorry. No, so that's not a derogatory term. Uh, I hasten to add, it's it's literally just that that's what we call cigarettes. So uh, in the in the, um, Australia, they would have said smoking a dairy. Um So he was outside having a, a crafty cigarette, and I I said, "Can I take? Would you mind if I took a photograph?" I've never had anybody more more kind of filled with the dejection of and and just be like, he went, oh, "All right then," <laughs> and it was oh, just wow. and, and he. And I took a picture of him, and um, he didn't smile in it. <laughs> so, so that was that was my Bert story. That's it. <laughs> and, it and and I I apologize for interrupting, but in the United States, that term, the British term for cigarettes, is a much more explosive and derogatory term. 
Mm. That's why I thought, you know, yes, uh, we're, we're, we're Americans who hear this thing. might jump on it. So, again, I apologize. Real quick. Oh, we the, have, uh, I, uh, Bill, I we have is, the term in, in the UK as well. It, it does mean the same thing. There. Yeah. It just has a dual uh, connotation. I think uh, context kind of uh, it usually explains it away. Um, the C yeah, word, on the I've other hand. I've been called it myself from time to time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. The C word, on the other hand, has no innocent explanation whatsoever. But it's still different. So. Something else over yeah. there than here. Jim. Unless you're BBC News and you're in Scunthorpe. Because. <laughs> yeah. No idea. That, that, you, that's, you, that's happened. <laughs> yes. uh, I, can't, I can't keep up with you guys on this stuff. So, okay, I'll, I'll, uh, I'll be quiet on term, in that context. Uh, so, certainly in, Sc- in Scotland, nobody can use it like the Scottish. It's, oh, okay. No, it's it, it, all the Australians. I have to say as well, they have a they have a, a good knack with it. Um, Can I just this, turn our attention back to the movie just quickly? Yeah. <laughs> Why would you do that? Uh, number one, that we passed probably one of the most quoted iconic scenes of James Bond being tortured, the laser sort of moving towards his genitals, and of course cutting him in half with the dialogue. Do you expect me to talk? No, I expect you to die. It's absolutely iconic, that line. I quote it, other people quote it, and it is followed by another iconic line where James Bond wakes up, asks Pussy Galore what her name is, and then says, I must be dreaming. And I'd say that these are sort of two of the the pieces of dialogue in James Bond that get quoted um, the most out there, and that sort of leads us into sort of um, Honor Blackman and sort of remembering her. She's recently passed away. But she really is probably one of the most iconic women of the 1960s. We'll talk about the barnyard scene, which is its own entity. But I think other than that, I think that she's sort of a strong, smart, capable pilot. She has her own uh, uh, women who make up their own sort of piloting troop, her own, uh, I think they call it what the Pussy Galore Flying Circus. And I just wanted to make sure we highlight just her awesomeness in a general sense, because I'm a big Honor Blackman fan and just want to give her her credit and have a moment to sort of like. Absolutely. Uh, well, and, and two and and two quick things just to, uh, on top of what you just said. One, that scene with the laser beam was also one of Barry's best um, tracks in the soundtrack, mm. which in the in the U.S. release of the soundtrack wasn't included, but I guess it was in the U.K. version, and so I didn't hear it on a um, soundtrack until the '90s, and then secondly. Um, Major again, another major major change from the novel. In the novel, Pussy Galore was one of the gangsters. She was like with the cement mixers, if I remember correctly. Yep. yep. So she was, yeah. So she was part of the the um, the group of gangsters. But here she's working for Goldfinger, but obviously independently on her own terms, sort of way. But uh, that was another major change between Maybaum and uh, Paul Dean. And we can only assume that cement mixers is some disgusting misogynist uh, euphemism that we just haven't decoded yet that Fleming threw in there. Yeah, you'd, you'd have to like, you know, go to a ex- extensive research library to figure it out. We'll just probably. take it on faith that it was nasty yeah, and yeah. gross. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> I did often wonder because I think it, it, Pussy Galore's troop is all um, lesbian women, aren't they? Yes, like, yes, they yeah. So I, I, yeah. I did wonder if it was some kind of yeah archaic. Uh, I'd bet a finger yeah. on it. Uh, bet my left. I, I wouldn't. I wouldn't bet a limb, but like I'd bet twenty bucks. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I can't believe it's taken me this long to realize, but uh, gold is one of the you know the heaviest um, precious metals. Yes, which is part of part of why the Fleming 
uh, plot of actually stealing yeah, the gold is like so improbable. So can I tell you something else that wouldn't work? Um, hi, Lockheed Martin. Yeah, so we want to place an order for a customized plane. Um, can you make that gold, please? All right. Um, um, would Mr. Goldfinger prefer a submarine? <laughs> here, by the way, here we are in another um, early product placement thing for the Bond series because Harry Saltzman cut a deal with, I think, Gillette. And so in the book I have about Goldfinger, so like Guy Hamilton is seeing Harry Saltzman going around the set, putting in stuff and said, Harry, when did you become a set dresser? Well, it was because he did this deal with Gillette. And so like that razor that Bond was using was from Gillette. It was part of the product placement, et cetera. So this was like really the first Bond movie where there was like very serious it, 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 it was the shaving cream and it was everything. Yeah, well, and and all the Ford car, all the Ford vehicles, which was would only be exceeded in Thunderball a year later, but uh, yeah, by as part of the Gillette deal, I right? had that so, razor, and yeah. it's not. So I, I have yeah, that razor. The point, the um, point being, why is one of the producers going around a set like changing old razors and stuff? Well, like kickbacks, Phil. It's it's you know. It's, well, that's but, the point. It's like, like but, you said, it's like one was, of the first deals. But the point being, Guy Hamilton was not privy to this. Like, so he's like, "What the Harry? No, what the no. deal is? Why is Harry doing this stuff?" And yeah. then he found out. Yeah, damn it! Where, where, where's so, my next uh, time I, to I my bought, popcorn, By the way, <laughs> <laughs> I think you ate it. I bought I bought one of those uh, those those Gillette razors at Art, Art of Shaving in uh, Fifth Avenue um, in New York because that's where because because that's where. Um, Bond gets his in 007 in New York. Yeah. Um, is it any good? Uh, uh, well, I was just about to say, um, there is a reason I have a beard. <laughs> Wait, serious question. Like, in 1964, had the uh, CIA not yet moved out to Langley, Virginia? Because, like, Felix has an office across the way from the White House. How else that, would we know he's in America? That's the whole that's point. Right. It's like that. That's that's such because, a thrill. Um, in the other, in the alternate version, he's sitting there eating an apple pie. It's going to be that, like that, sat outside a KFC in a bit. So, right. well, but that you're making my point for me. It's like <laughs> in the in those days, it's like let's establish he's in Washington. Oh, he's across from the White House, or alternative. Uh, he's across from the U.S. Capitol because it's like those are the only two things people know. So I, I, I suspect Felix would not in real life have an office across from the White House mm. even and, and in I, 1964. I understand that a part of that is the travelogue aspect of it and obviously that's a big thing certainly in these earlier Bond films. Uh, I guess the Bond films where he goes to America have a a sort of negative reputation, I suppose, and uh, certainly from the travel log aspect, it doesn't um, work as well for uh, for me anyway. Uh, it's just it's a much less exotic and interesting. We watched Thunderball um, last time, and there's just so much. I don't particularly enjoy that film, but there is just so much that I get out of just seeing the characters in this location and you know, the fil- well, you know, local people and the shops and all that kind of stuff. It's well, really nice uh, here. Well, okay. Now so. that we're in America, I'm going to like talk about. I mentioned this last year. On the podcast the geography of kentucky makes no sense in this movie because <laughs> because felix said mm. uh, bluegrass yeah. fields yeah, kentucky, the their final destination which was like okay in 1964 the airport in lexington kentucky was called bluegrass field and blue and lexington is the heart of kentucky's horse farm 
country. Okay, so far, so good. But as a base to attack Fort Knox doesn't make sense because Fort Knox... Okay, so Lexington is 80 miles east of Louisville, Kentucky, the biggest city in Kentucky. But Fort Knox is 35 miles southwest of Louisville. So to launch an attack on Fort Knox from Lexington, Kentucky, doesn't make sense. It's like... We'll get to it. Well, you'll see it later. So, like, Pussy Galore's Flying Circus is going to, like, drop was supposed to be uh, poison on Fort Knox. They, you know, Fort Knox would know about it, like, it would take them, like, an hour. Even flying at 110 miles an hour, it would probably take them the better part of an hour to go from Lexington to Fort Knox. And so, like, you know, like the guys at Fort Knox going, hey, guy, hey, Charles, look at this. Yeah, yeah, Edgar. There's like there's like six planes coming at us. What do you think it is? Uh, I don't know. I think we should probably scramble some helicopters to intercept him, don't you think? Yeah, I think you're right. <laughs> but, but of course, audiences wouldn't think in those terms in the in those days. But so uh, thinking about the, the the White House in the background when uh, Felix is on the phone, if you if you started sticking random backgrounds behind Felix, it's like. Uh, but uh, if you put the Eiffel Tower example, would you think Trump? <laughs> would you think Las Vegas? You know what? The, <laughs> you, the guys you put who made anything behind him, and you think Las Vegas. <laughs> the, the, the guys who made the movie Airplane and did other comedic movies, they did that same thing. <laughs> they would like change the background. I'm going to do was, the. I'm going to do the zoom backgrounds of James Bond. Um, there you go. The, uh, there was there was a uh, short-lived TV show called. Um, was it was Le- Leslie Nielsen? Anyway, says so it was like this uh, first-person narration. I was in the I was in Little Italy, and you see this background of the Leaning Tower of Pisa. <laughs> <laughs> so that that became a parody thing unto itself. Years later, so when we kind of tipped off that um, Danny Boyle's script had Bond incarcerated for a bit in that gulag, which they're going to shoot in Canada, um, everybody was like, "You can't have Bond." captured and locked up for most of the movie mm. <laughs> hey. well, well you know what there was an interview with terence young where he claimed that he was brought in to kind of consult during post-production and like and and, and that and i'm sure he'd love to yeah have people know that and that supposedly like bond the way it was cut initially bond was cut captured even earlier it's like well, you gotta like drag it out a little bit but yeah it's you're right it's very early and here we are at the uh, kfc which was is still there in florida huh. we'll, we'll tweet out the google maps for it and oh, go okay all right james get the clacks ready so <laughs> in the uh in the in the early in the not in the novel in the no, well yeah, stay still Hang on, be calm. So, in the uh, in the novel of the gangsters, it was a guy named Springer who did not want to go along with the plan. And in the early drafts of this script, it was also Springer who did not want to go along, and he got killed ahead of the others. But in the final film, suddenly it's Mister Solo. Now, why would this possibly be? Well, it could be because there was a legal fight going beyond going on behind the scenes where. Um, Eon's lawyers sent a cease and desist letter to MGM. You have a series called Solo, and we want you to shut it down. MGM's lawyers got involved, and they changed the name of the show as a result. 
but the show still went on. But I think the name of uh, the name change might have been a little uh, twisting of the knife. Well, we can shut you down, but we're going to like, you know, insult the name of your hero by having him die in the most humiliating way. That's just a theory on my part, but I think it's not entirely baseless. It, it sounds it sounds fairly fairly valid as valid as um, as anything else I'd say. Um, it, yeah, as you say, it's um, it seems an unusual name to just throw in there. Uh, otherwise, um, so Lisa, if you're talking about maps, to... change... no, go go ahead then. Oh, this is great. No, uh, go, go ahead. <laughs> I was going to say, if you're talking about maps of James Bond, can we throw in dioramas of James Bond? Oh, yeah. I mean, I oh, love yeah. everything yeah, that yeah, has yeah. with, like, rep- uh, any sort of imagery we have. I love the little scale thing that comes out of the floor. Um, oh, yeah. I think I always find it interesting, again, you know, when somebody decides to tell you their entire plan fully and completely and Bond has the opportunity to listen in. But I actually love this scene. I love the way that the, the room is set. I like the fact that there's wood on the sides and on, on the ceiling. So I love sort of the textures that are involved. Um, yeah, I think this is beautifully shot. But yeah, I love with scales, maps, anything like that, I love. Can, yeah. can you imagine when a Goldfingers guy is going into Walgreens and saying, I need a 30 by 20 blow up of the Fort? He brings in the negative that was taken from a flight. And said, I need this like blown up to like 30 by 20. Can you get that to me by Thursday? <laughs> Got a big presentation this weekend. Because this is, because, yeah, that, yeah, I need it by Thursday because this presentation is on Saturday because the uh, raid on Fort Knox is on Sunday. All of which is established in the dialogue. All of which would alert the authorities. Uh-huh. <laughs> Maybe. Well, uh, we're talking about Kentucky for crying out loud. It's like you know. It's like I want to note. I'm 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 the only member of the panel who's actually been to Fort Knox. So. Ooh. <laughs> yes, oh, no. Did they let you in? No, not to the, not to the depository. No, but on the military <laughs> base, yes. But I, yeah, but I was in a car with like guys, and they like we paused and said, you know, we're there. There's the depository. Yeah, and if you go this far, you get a recorded warning. If you go further, then they start shooting you. So, <laughs> well, yeah, that's what they say. Brilliant. <laughs> yeah. Just going knocks, knocks on the door. <laughs> Sorry. So the yeah. Interestingly, the um, Goldfinger's uh, estate is um, actually built uh, on the pretty much where uh, the, the Fort Knox set is built. So, um, interestingly, to think when you're you know you're seeing Bonds uh, drinking his mint julep, etc., um, that he's actually um, looking at where um, Fort Knox will eventually be standing. In- you know, I bet when they did that, when they filmed that scene where Bond's supposed to be getting a mint julep, I bet somebody in the commissary poured Jack Daniels just liquor instead, not knowing the difference. So. <laughs> Judy Dench around the corner. 
Have any of you ever tried it though? Like that's one, that is a drink that I actually want to try, but I never yes. have. Julie, yes, yes, oh, I yeah. have. Many, I have. Many, it's many. very sweet and it's very good. And it's like, yeah. um, because, Ch- because Churchill Downs, I don't know if it's still involved, but they like were involved with an uh, Indianapolis place. And so I went there on Derby Day in Indianapolis, not you know, not not in Louisville where they actually had the horse race. And so it's like, well, I'm here on Derby Day. I gotta order mint julep. And it was like, ooh, it's like really good. But it's like you gotta be like really careful because you get smashed really easily <laughs> drinking this thing. And hyper from all the sugar in it. So it's a yeah. combination. Yeah. It's like the sixties version of Red Bull and vodka. Right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> gotta yeah. hate Red Bull. Oh, and um, God, I, Jesus! Christ, we just sponsors are just peeling off. Our, uh, <laughs> well, okay. Meanwhile, you, you need to talk to a rum company, please. Mm. I, I did. I, I left a voicemail and I emailed the uh, Baron Samadhi rum folks, oh. and they are not returning my call because apparently we shit talk so many brands on this podcast that uh, they're not willing to take the risk. No. We've talked up Kentucky Fried Chicken. I'm sorry, KFC. Maybe we could get the. Uh, I don't. Sponsorship from them. <laughs> oh yeah, great. I think we're more Thanks, likely to be sponsored by the ner- among us. <laughs> Yeah, I think we're more likely to be sponsored by the purveyors of nerve gas than. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Go for it. Yeah. Sponsored by Sarin. Uh, I'll take. I'll take my own right now. I'm, I'll, 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 I'll be willing to try it out. <laughs> okay. Okay. This note. Double. Seven. The CI. Like. What if that note gets to someone other than Felix? Like, you would like, you know, you're like a guy on the street. Well, then they wouldn't know who 007 is because it's such a secret code number that they wouldn't know what the hell it was about. Right. And to see, somebody punches them, somebody comes out of the closet and punches him in the stomach. But my point being, it's like the equivalent of like putting a note in a bottle and throwing it over the, the hoping it gets to somebody. Isn't that pretty much what he does in the book? Doesn't he? Yeah. He yeah. 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 He tapes it to the underside of the toilet, I think. Yeah. It's, yes. it's just like, yes. oh, some kid's been in here messing around. God damn it. God damn it. Obviously, it's been pointed out many times before that it makes no sense that Goldfinger would go to the extent of explaining his plan to these people to only kill them all. But I do like how Gertfro plays his exasperation through a lot of this. And like, I buy yeah. that he'd just like come out of the room and be like, you know what? I just can't Gas- be bothered with Gas- this again. Well, and, and, and also, Gas- he's a psychopath and he's an egotist. And so it's like he's playing to an audience that he's about to kill. So it's like, well, when 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 that's where you're coming from, well, it makes sense. Psychopathic, in a really villainous sort of way. Does it remind you of anybody? I don't want to go there. But, yeah. <laughs> Who's got the hot scoop on where Gary Marshall is in this movie? He's not in the movie. Prove that it. is a mistake that got put into IMDb by someone who didn't know any better. I'm sorry. I got a little excited about that. It finally, it actually got taken out. Oh, it's I didn't like he's not in the movie. <laughs> Harry Marshall is not in Goldfinger. Laughing at Lisa's laugh. That was brilliant. You know what we should do? We should try and convince. We should sponsor one of the surviving cast members to legally change their name to Gary Marshall. There you go. <laughs> Are there any engineer that shit? <laughs> Retcon it. Mm-hmm. 
like with, yeah, with, the, with the death of Otto Blackman, I'm not sure there's any left. It's like, oh, I was the, yeah. I was like the third hunchman who like pushed the button. <laughs> Someone comes forward. Twenty pounds for an autograph. <laughs> yes. Well, I've only got ten pounds. Give me what you've got. Yeah. <laughs> Give me a credit card and your ID. Give me a credit card. So okay. So in the novel, all these all these gangsters like went with Goldfinger all the way to Fort Knox, and then like what? You know. So here, this like is this. Whoa, there's like Gary Marshall. Mob. I saw him. Can we just say I like the mob boss? Yeah. It was just like. He's just like playing, running the little car up and down the little street. Like, this is great. Well, one guy was riding on a horse. He he's really reverting, he's reverting to his like five-year-old self. They're, yeah. yeah, they're all kind face, of childish. Face masks can often be useful. Mm, wear your mask, people. I like the disco lighting yeah. because, you know, that's like... Okay, all right. Yeah, uh, by disco. The, car, the car crushing scene now. So, all like, right. even then... Oh, I'm a little bit ahead of you, so... Mm-hmm. Um, uh, okay. Uh, quite well, that's not great. So we're not even talking about we're not even talking about the same movie. <laughs> we're, though, you know, we're like. just we're just watching we're just watching the uh, the very British Coventry forklift truck um, drop off uh, a load in Kentucky. I'm, 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 <laughs> yeah, yeah, I think you need to pause for about three seconds, Bill. All right, let me pause for three seconds. Yeah. 1,001, 1,002, 1,003. Okay, so Bond is meeting Mr. Solo. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, Bond says, oh, I understand you're Mr. Solo. I'm not that Mr. Solo. <laughs> <laughs> so, wow, anyway. this is the this... best track we've done. <laughs> so this anyway, is this whole the polish about after 20 Ray... plus films. We've really got this down, haven't we? <laughs> so, so, so here's the thing. At this Smooth. point, we're, 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 we're three movies in and like, okay, this last Last gangster's got to die, but like it's got. But Saltzman, he's got to die spectacularly. And apparently, he was talking to Wolf Mankiewicz. Uh, it's like, oh, I got this problem, blah blah. blah. So Mankiewicz says, "I got an idea." Well, it cost you like, was it fifteen hundred pounds? I forget. Like five, no, five hundred pounds. I think it was even that. So it's like, well, I got an idea, but you have to pay for it. And uh, so he had the idea of the car crushing thing, and. In, in Florida, we have the uh, uh, palm trees in Kentucky here. Um, so has, okay. has the CIA been given the same new GPS? Yes, they have. Okay, okay. It's, so it's here is like actually Florida. You can actually download it and put it on your phone, James. Okay. All right. We, we, we saw some palm – we've seen palm trees in this sequence, and uh, it's supposed to be Kentucky, but Kentucky doesn't have palm trees. Spoiler alert. Mm. And it's okay. And so we go – so in the scene it, 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 will do, it will do in 20 years, though. <laughs> if it's not underwater. But um, – oh, God. Anyway. Sorry. I, I had my laugh lines all worked out for this sequence. Anyway, um, so when you see the fi- scenes actually filmed in Florida doubling for Kentucky, you see – Felix with like, you know, in the passenger seat, his arm out, you know, hanging outside the passenger door. Um, And then like you cut to, um, you know, rear projection with an actor like driving. It's like C. Slender and the other guy. Okay. I just saw uh, Odd Job kill Mr. Solo. So 
You're still ahead. Yeah, I'm still ahead. You're about half a second uh, ahead. All right, that's close enough. Um, this is actually one of the best tracks on the uh, soundtrack, even though it doesn't really match up that well. Okay, so where I'm seeing is like the Thunderbird slams on its brakes and it's now yeah. like making the turn. So yeah. like, okay, there's C-Slender because you see him in the passenger seat and like you see a shadowy figure driving. And, oh, and then we cut to rear projection with the other guy because this was done in Pinewood. And so now we're back in Florida and now we see rear projection with odd job and odd job is going into a junkyard in Florida. Let's say a second ahead. Okay. Second <laughs> ahead. Well, bear with me. Bear with me. Don't give us a spoiler. It's spell. So- <laughs> <laughs> okay. And so now odd jobs walking off. It's so more, like, okay, um, now stop to think about this. Are you just going to, are you just going to comment? <laughs> Like, yes, on, on like literally, I, yes, what I, yes I am. I'm just <laughs> going to go with this. There's a man walking away. There's a guy in a truck. There's <laughs> it's a guy like it's, it's like, like the audio descriptions. <laughs> well, okay, it's like audio okay. descriptions for the for the blind. They visually the, they removed the engine from the uh, uh, Continental for the uh, whatever that is, dragging it to the uh, crushing machine, and. Uh, on Bill, the... is this like car porn for you? Is it a snuff film, surely? I'm actually working up to how uh, Oddjob loses 80 pounds and regains it in, about a, in, in seconds. But I hate this scene. Well, <laughs> why? Why do you hate it? 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 It's so prolonged, and it's about. There goes, a, there goes another sponsor. <laughs> well, well, we're, have we're, you, have you never owned a car, Calvin? Uh, I actually, Ford, haven't. Ford, no. Ford Motor mm. Company is having like financial difficulties right now, so I'm, I don't think they're prime sponsor. Uh, possibility. Uh, wouldn't sponsor us. <laughs> That's right. No. I'm like, oh, we, we lost the junkyard too. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so all right, at the point I'm with, the Magnus taking the crush car, and there's a very skinny odd job gets into this truck, and then when we get back into the Looks truck, suddenly like he's walk. like, odd job is eighty pounds heavier. Yes, and has a mustache again. Yeah. Uh, no, Mr. I Solo didn't have any uh, blood in his body either. Well, here's the other. <laughs> well, here's the other thing. It's like, okay, Goldfinger wants his gold. Like, this is not an efficient way of getting it back. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Wouldn't it, be, wouldn't it be easier to have Ajab shoot him, bury Mr. Solo, and then like put the gold back? With or leave the rest Mr. Of Solo gold. in there with the other gangsters in, in the first place. Cal- and Calvin, just the Calvin, you need to you need to do a whole. St- you need to do a whole series of videos oh. on inefficiencies in the Bond films. <laughs> <laughs> this one is particularly egregious. I, I don't feel like many of the films spend such a long time on something so pointless for the sake of, I, I guess right. it was maybe, maybe in the... Here's, here's <laughs> the point. Harry Saltzman felt it had to be bigger, grander, whatever. And then like Wolf Mankiewicz conned him out of 500 pounds. <laughs> with right. an idea so uh, i think the thing you've got to take into consideration is our job may be paid by the hour <laughs> so he's driving probably, driving he's to florida driving back to kentucky you know claiming on the mileage you know. yeah and and so he, he did a bit like uh bond asked quarrel to do in dr no the, the, the novel dr no and it's to get um 
uh, Bond asked Coral to get a, uh, hire a couple of people that look roughly like them to drive a car around the island for a bit. And so maybe Oddjob did that in Goldfinger. He hired somebody who looked a bit like him to drive the car. And he went off to lunch or to the gym or just had, had a, a sleep. He's, he's subcontracted. Yeah, so meanwhile, meanwhile Bond, all of Bond's plots have uh, gone totally crashed into the wall he's like he has nothing left at this point you see goldfinger at this point should realize that all he has to do is hire a grandma with a gun (laughs) rather than 20 korean stooges yeah the 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 problem for bond is that he's an orphan and so uh his parents are gone and presumably his grandparents are gone so he can't just drag his granny along so we're about to have the chat where bond talks to goldfinger because he because Goldfinger wants to reassure the CIA guys keeping an eye on things. Everything's okay. You don't have to worry about Bond. And this is the scene where they have the thing, they have the line that was cut out of the ABC broadcast about, well, there's so many people get killed every, you know, killed every year. Because Bond's, you know, you'll kill X number of people uselessly. Uh, American Motors kill that many every year. That well, the that's other point the line is that, number have, that number would have changed also in ten years. But, yeah. Well, not nineteen. Well, it doesn't matter. That's not why the car company wanted the the line out. They just wanted like any kind of reminder, like tens of thousands of people get killed in they, auto they, accidents they every year. They could have redubbed it. They could have redubbed it and said, "Well, influenza." That's, I, influenza. I, re, I I repeat, that's not why the auto company wanted that line out. <laughs> and and ABC said, okay, boss, fine. You're, you're the advertiser. That's fine by us. It's just a movie. Phil, what's your take on um, Phil, what's your take on Bond being like basically along for the ride at this point versus being an active participant? Nope. He's gone to freshen his drink. He, he's being zipped right. into his onesie. <laughs> <laughs> Calvin, I don't, you, you want I, to pitch him? Ben? No, Calvin, go ahead. Oh no, I, I, I like this scene um, it, it, mainly because of just these two actors just uh, playing off each other. It's It, it works because they're so charismatic and, and good. Uh, yeah. But Bond it's is completely my... sidelined. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's one of my biggest uh, biggest gripes about the film, really, and also the book, is essentially he has no real agency. Um, he is just kind of like waltzing uh, through through it. And we, you know, we we mentioned this in the um, uh, Tomorrow Never Dies commentary. You know, it's great when you see Bond kind of taking an active role, spying, doing doing the work to to you know, uh, get, get the mission solved here. He's yeah. I mean, he really doesn't, he's just, he's just hoping that things work out. Um, and at this point right now, even though he's extremely casual and comfortable, um, as Bill pointed out earlier, you know, all, all the things that he's been trying to do are, are kind of essentially being thwarted. So, mm. um, so yeah, there's yeah, that statue that- in the background again, James. Yeah. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. I completely I really, agree with that. I, I really love there, uh, Bond's suit in this, and it's, it's a bit of a classic. Mm-hmm. I hate the waistcoat. I I got the suit, but I skipped the waistcoat. Oh, good good choice, yeah. 
I like a waistcoat. You know, you know what's funny is that conduit cut. I wear it for like, you know, high falutin to work. It's available and... from Mason and Sons. Yes, that's where I got <laughs> Anthony mine. Anthony Sinclair and... by Mason and Sons. Yeah. Yeah. And, um... If I wore suits, I would buy it, but I wouldn't buy the waistcoat. Yeah, when I have to wear a suit, that's one of the ones I go to. And you'd be surprised the number of people that come up and say, that looks like Sean Connery would wear that. I was like, yep. So it's in the public, um, you know. Yeah. It's out there that they, I think this is the one that's probably consciousness. Uh, that's the word I was looking for. So are yeah. we going to It's not, in, it's not interestingly enough, it's not a classic conduit cut suit, um, you know, in the sense that um, this, this is actually quite markedly different from a lot of the other cuts of the suits that he's been wearing up until now. Yeah. Uh, a lot of the fact is that um, the costuming from this film comes from Woman of Straw almost entirely. Um, and this suit, um, although was you know is now shown to be cut by um, uh, Anthony Sinclair, it's uh, it's not a classic conduit cut. Lisa, please talk about this scene. Yeah, I just wanted to make sure that we talk about this scene. This is a scene that my students actually find incredibly disturbing, um, where Pussy Galore clearly says, "I'm not interested in in in, in sleeping with you," and so. Uh, there's sort of a tussle that goes on between them. The music itself actually codes it as being flirtatious, like do do do, like a joke. Yeah, like it's, it's some sort of joke. But she clearly has said no, and she's not giving affirmative consent. And I think the most awkward moment is how long it takes before Bond forces himself on top of her to kiss. And it it, it hasn't aged well. It doesn't feel good back then, and it still doesn't feel good today to watch. Um, and it really sort of presents this notion that no doesn't mean no, that you have to keep trying and eventually a woman will succumb to your charms. And that's something that, again, so, so we're sort of going through that moment. I mean, it's it. This is horrific. This looks awful. And if Bond is a man with this sort of sexual magnetism, he shouldn't have to do this much in order to sort of appeal to to a woman. So I've never felt comfortable with yeah. this, this particular scene. So. Lisa, I don't know. I don't know if you've heard this like more modern theory on this, which is, and I don't agree with it, but I wanted to know what you felt about it. Which is, some Bond fans excuse it as it, this um, seducing her was the last shot he had at completing his mission. It was oh, the last. I, I've seen was, that. It was too. the last play he's had, so he has to force himself on her. So it's not like he wants to; it's because he has to, and that's how they excuse it. Well, they I, write it that way. Sorry, Lisa. No, no, you go ahead, Calvin. No, no, you go ahead, Calvin. No, no, no. I, I'm going to say because I've heard that as well, and I, I really can't stand that. It's like, well, what do you know? They write it so that it, that he feels like he had to do that. Maybe if he said, "By the way, I overheard your boss talking about this, and uh, he's going to kill quite a lot of people by doing this." She at this point does not realize that she's actually uh, going to be killing people. Uh, she just thinks they're going to be putting them to sleep. Um, and I would have thought that that would be a far more uh, quick and succinct way of appealing to someone's uh, humanity than uh, raping them. But anyway. Yeah. And I, I think it's a very convenient thing to say, well, it's written this way. It doesn't make it right. And the way mm. that it was coded, this sends the message that if you try hard enough, it's okay. Keep applying the pressure. Eventually a woman will succumb and she'll be fine with it. And, the, and again, this is coded in very sort of heterosexual terms, but it does have resonance you know, sort of that, that crosses that sort of binary that's being presented. 
the, the result of sexual assault is not this loving, happy place that you get put in. These are lifelong uh, repercussions. And that's something that I just, I always push back on this. Even if people, t- I mean, I've had people say, well, Honor Blackman says, and I'm like, okay, uh-huh, I, I respect Honor Blackman and, and, and her point of view, but the message that it sends goes beyond Honor Blackman and her perspective or her recalling of this scene. It just yeah. creates this cultural justification that I don't think is okay. And that, by the way, students, my students who watch this, watch this film and refer to Sean Connery as being the rapey bond. Those are their terms, not mine. (laughs) And it's so disturbing to sort of see that. And yet I think that cuts or detracts from his legacy as being the lover. A lover uh, appeals to their partner and their partner's pleasures and doesn't force themselves on their partners. So I'm just sort of, yeah. In in those Criterion commentaries, Guy Hamilton kind of sort of addresses it, not really directly, but he at least seems to acknowledge eh, it might have been a little dicey. I, I forget the exact quote. Um, anyway. Um, I think it might be a little dicey. That, you might, know, might, I, might I be your... very dicey, actually. But he, well, he at least he's like aware of the criticism because, again, those – uh, criterion commentaries would have been done decades after the film and you know people had a chance to chew it over very quick aside and keep going after this observation but those, those scenes with the uh, planes supposedly spraying the uh, nerve gas that's the real Fort Knox and that was like one of the last things filmed in the movie and uh, FYI but yeah, and there was that uh, red brick building that said "Welcome, General Rushon." That was a reference to uh, Broccoli's kind of Mister Fixit, who was, I think, a retired colonel, not a general. So they kind of gave him a little boost there with that sign. But uh, but I remember that red brick building because I flew there on a army helicopter from uh, where I was working to work on that story at Fort Knox. So. <laughs> Do that again, Calvin. That was great. That was me. <laughs> oh, <laughs> sorry. It was. Uh, it was. It was. It was, it was pitched Calvin esque. Um. <laughs> I'm. I'm not bragging about being at Fort Knox. I was like, no, not it was really the army close to the building. Well. What happened was the army pitched the story of the paper I was working at. I worked at a paper. My first professional job was at a paper called The Gleaner. And like, so. Oh, um, really? Very yeah. And so, and, so, and so the first week I was there, it's like they took me out to drinks because I was a new guy and said, yeah. And then like the boss said, yeah, we tried to figure out Gleaner. And that's, you know, people don't react real well to that name. It's like I researched it. The only paper I could find was in King's. Kingston, Jamaica. I said, "Yeah, with James Bond's favorite paper." And he looked at me weird, and I said, "Oh, it's in the novels. Trust me." Mm-hmm. <laughs> like Oric has a side business making spectrometers. <laughs> He's a megalomaniac. You know, megalomaniacs get into all sorts of stuff. By the way, was his hair red in the novel? Yes. I think that's right. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, I think he's just interesting that his name is Oric Goldfinger. Oric itself, like Orem means yeah, gold. Yeah, I, I, I think the, the character in the film is almost exactly like he is in the novel. Yeah, yeah. Except, except in the novel, he was kind of short. He was like five foot, I think. I can't remember. I mean, I mean but but 
it doesn't so matter. what came first his name or his obsession with gold because mm. going by that rule calvin you should really like vacuums like a lot <laughs> <laughs> and, 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 uh, public toilet hand dryers <laughs> by the way during this sequence is like one of barry's best uh, tracks on the soundtrack raid dawn raid on fort knox although to make a dawn raid on fort knox going from lexington to fort knox you'd have to leave about oh about midnight um given how fast those trucks were going especially with that heavy laser cannon so lisa do you have a scheme to steal all the world's funnels that's right. Um, <laughs> Let me tell you, there's a lot of nicknames you can make with the with the last name Funnel. Funnel Funnel. <laughs> I, I think that's a low I think that's a low profit scheme though, but yeah. I'm, I'm not sure. I'm I'm not I'm not a criminal. Mr. Bones, see the way the water drips from this container into that container. i always thought it was funny um in living in oklahoma we obviously have a lot of tornadoes and it's so funny because i watch the commentary and they're like there's a funnel here and a funnel there and i'm like mom dad like you hear them talk about funnels and i'm like is this my family like that's your your super villain scheme a machine that makes tornadoes now just, now, now just now just work on the science that's all someone make me a comic Come on. So make a, make a comic of me being a villain and like funnels is my like power. Oh, okay. Oh, so uh, so somewhere in this sequence, uh, Michael G. Wilson gets his first cameo because he was it was the summer between being an undergrad and grad student. And he's like one of the quote okay. one of the Koreans. Lots of people just like napping around the set. Yeah. <laughs> wow. They um, oh, wow. they also they also stole the some from, from um, uh, Boca Raton in Florida uh, with, uh, from an airport in Boca Raton in Florida. They stole one of the DB5s from uh, the film. That's right. Uh, oh, well, and, allegedly. And the way in which, the, uh, and one of the ways in which they did that, uh, it was in a hangar, and they cut the door off the hangar in the same way. Uh, and pulled it off rather than break the locks. They cut cut through the, the, the roller door. Um, and you know what's so, funny, Ben? Is every time know. we do a story about that on the website, uh, we get contacted by the insurance agency who's still chasing it down. <laughs> oh, well. Ale- oh, sorry, oh, allegedly. They are, <laughs> yeah. they are asking, for, for asking for leads, are they? Me- yes, Meanwhile. because they don't believe it was – well, allegedly uh, they they may suspect that it wasn't – it was a put-up job for the insurance. Mm, yeah. Me- Meanwhile, uh, Calvin, you recently did a uh, review of a non-Bond spy film, and that (laughs) helicopter that uh, Pussy Galore supposedly flew into Fort Knox, it's in that movie. What, the actual helicopter? That's my understanding. Oh, wow. Oh. Because they they needed a vintage helicopter, and it's apparently still in service, or at least was in 2013 when they filmed the movie. They used to do a lot of shows, that helicopter. Sorry. Seen Doctor Who and a bunch of other things as around that time. Hmm. So by the way, the the exterior, it's a duplicate, obviously, but Ken Adam, mm. they they actually flew him over the actual depository and gave him a look at it so he could do a rough approximation of the exterior. Obviously, the interior is like totally Ken Adam 
yeah. Peter Lamont's first gig, I think, was to skip yeah. to his yeah. construction, draw the construction yeah, yeah. paperwork. Yeah. From there, so. Right. This this was Peter Lamont's first film where he worked as a draftsman on the first Bond movie. Worked yeah, as a draftsman. A beautiful set, isn't it? Oh my God, that is a beautiful it's, set. It's, I'm sure it's better than the real, <laughs> the real thing. Yeah. It's like so fantastic. Yeah. Do you all like the but echo just... too in the soundtrack? Like the way that things echoes, like the metallic echoes. That's something I mm-hmm. remember about the scene where it's like it's the sound, the sound design. Yeah, sound yeah. design. It's, ev- it's it's yeah. it's everything working together at this point, which is just what what I love about this. Is this is why this is sort of peak Bond? Is because all of these elements, you know, the music, the sound design, uh, the, the the set design, the costuming, uh, just you know, having the, the the ensemble of actors that you've got here, it all just works so beautifully um, to create and, this. this and feeling. also, there was um, a, there was also a really nice tone of finality when Goldfinger says goodbye, Mister Bond. Like, mm. as, you know, Goldfinger thinks this is settled, this is done. Um, now, of course, in terms of science and physics. Um, they Uh-oh. set the they set the thing the bomb to go off in three minutes. Like I think you might. Oh, like to go the man with the golden gun. Hey. <laughs> well, I'm thinking what we were talking about yesterday about the No Time to Die trail. Anyway, just like it takes a little long. You might want to. You can't get away far enough in three minutes with a nuclear bomb to go off. That's uh, no, I'm absolutely yeah. Well, it's not a nuke per se. It's a dirty bomb, isn't it? The way they've set it up. I think it's, it's a dirty I, bomb. It's not. A, I think it's, it's not, close enough. It's there wouldn't be a mushroom. Well, cloud. Th- like the, 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 there wouldn't be a mushroom cloud. It wouldn't go. It wouldn't reach critical mass. That's no, the um, you, that's you'd, the big ira- You'd ir- irradiate everything within a. Um, uh, I would trust, trust me. I would want, I'm uh, like three minutes. Uh, no, make it 30 minutes. Make it well, three. Oh yeah. It, you know, you, you, in aliens, they say you now have 30 minutes to reach minimum safe distance. So I just wanted to throw an aliens reference in there. James. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, so I'll make a sound effect for it. Next week. Um, but yeah, a dirty bomb. I mean, because, of, because this is a depository in a vault, I mean, it wouldn't necessarily get out. Uh, Wait, I'm I'm on like the level above that. I'm not taking that chance. <laughs> no, I'm not saying you set up a deck chair outside to watch it. I'm just saying this. I'm, I'm saying I'm saying like I want to be like a hundred miles away when it goes off. That's what I'm saying. So, uh, hang, yeah. hang on, James. I need to I need to pick you up on that. Uh, so it's like today is Armageddon Day. So. I'm just going to stick my deck chair in my garden and watch. Well, you know what? If it's Armageddon Day, you're better to go quickly. Maybe. Yeah, yeah I'd rather. I do like. I do like. I know. Live in cities because they say if it's going to kick off, I want to be. I want to be gone. I don't want to wait two weeks right. to go. Anyway, Meanwhile, track. this this Bond versus Oddjob face-off gets perilously yeah, close to parody, particularly where he, he hurls the gold bar and like bounces off odd jobs chest. Now that's like, okay, that's where like bo- the bond series. Foreshadowing. Uh, well, also in terms of it's uh, how it owes things to the pulps. I mean, that is like the pulps of the early 20th century. It's so good though. Well, it is good. I'm not, I'm not arguing against it. I'm just saying it goes up to the line. That's, that's all I'm saying. I was going to say, I think Oddjob is a very fascinating and compelling hench person. Number one, he doesn't speak. 
And I think there's problems. I can critique that, you know, when you don't actually have a character telling you uh, their point of view. And so you fear the unknown. But he is a strong man. And he is this opponent that Bond cannot beat, you know, brawn to brawn, like many other hench people that come after Oddjob. He really sort of sets that bar. And so Bond has to use his brain and he has to use the tools around him in order to defeat Oddjob. And when we talk about, you know, this idea of, of, you know, this nuclear explosion, odd job is a believer. Like you have hench people. I know we've joked about hench people. You call up the hench person line, right? And who do you get to sort of come and work for you? He's here. He killed the other guy who wanted to sort of run away. He buys into and he believes in Goldfinger's plan. And so there's something to be said here about that level of loyalty. I don't know what the two of them have, but that's a level of loyalty um, that I think is is sort of notable. And so he's willing to die for the cause and kill Bond in the process from stopping, uh, 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 from detonating the bomb. Yeah, Oddjob Oddjob left his estate to his cats. For the record, (laughs) Oddjob has a couple lines. One is, ah, and the other is, ah, ah. Um, I I agree with what you said, but... You know what? This is actually a precursor to Marvel Studios movies, because in the sense of, I mean, this is Boys. this is like the first A-list comic book movie, because it's like you know, with the car, with Odd Job, the hat, all that stuff. It's like you know, they don't wear costumes there. It's Odd really Job in clothing. Marvel movies. Well, he was. <laughs> okay. James, get the klaxon ready. He was a guest, he not a guest star, he was a bit player in Hawaii 5 and um <laughs> so, <laughs> didn't have the klaxon ready. I'm disappointed. That's my version. There you go. Can I just can I just say it's a shame that we didn't get the 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 um like shocking, positively shocking line for odd job. And we had it for Capango in the beginning. I think it would have been right. better, better served there. Anyway, sorry, to, sorry to interrupt you. Or, or, the, or he, he, they could have used it twice, though. Uh, if, if it had been <laughs> said the same line. <laughs> okay. Yeah. yeah. Meanwhile, meanwhile, okay, we're reaching the climax here, but like Bond. It's not Bond who actually defuses the bomb. It's like the guy who's with Felix. <laughs> and it's, it's like, this is like really tense. It sets up. But then it's like, oh, Bond's like, well, you can't say he's not needed, but it's like. No, he also puts his back to all the guys coming in the door, which is yeah, nuts. Yeah. Well, no, I mean, this is it. Like, he does nothing. The only thing he does is uh, persuades, if it wasn't for him, Pussy Galore wouldn't have contacted Washington. Right, and that's, right. And that's it. But Right. And maybe, uh, no, actually, it's not even getting rid of Oddjob. <laughs> was, I mean, well, all these guys coming with guns, I'm sure, could have uh, taken right. out Oddjob. But. But, but he doesn't, he has no idea how to really deactivate the bomb. He's, like, kind of like, touching that. it. Yeah. yeah. Okay. And then he's like, okay, I've got seconds to go. I'm going to like guess. And then he's like, grab some wires. And what? Then... Why, why is all the, why is there all, all this mechanical stuff going yeah, Why is it spinning? And, and, because it's 1964 yeah. and that's the best they had I to know, work but with. He can stop it with his hand. So why doesn't he just do that? Because if it's, if it's crucial for the bomb, so it's, it might be that if it stops it goes off in which case don't stop it why did he try that yeah. mm-hmm. anyway of course it's a well known 
thing, but like in the script, it said it was like three seconds to go. And then they put the insert shot was oh, oh, seven seconds to go. Yeah, I know. I, I didn't know that until years after I spoke yeah. it. So, so meanwhile, fine. the Ian Fleming Foundation has the miniature we're about to see, which was half of it was painted to look like a U.S. jet and half of it was painted to look like Goldfinger's jet. So the actual miniatures in the foundation's possession, and I've seen it, and it's like, because one time I was like, they said, we need your help to like hold this to the display case. So it's like, blah, blah, blah. So I was like, okay, I'm holding with this other guy. I said, oh, by the way, they paid $50,000 for it or whatever it was. Mm-hmm. And it's like, just before we're getting put in the case, like, oh, fuck you. Like, don't tell him. <laughs> wait, wait till it's in the case for crying out loud. Oh, and who's that guy behind Goldfinger? You see him in a few shots. He's like on the floor, I think, I guess. I th- no, no. I thought you said, Goldfinger comes I thought you said the, uh, gynecologist. <laughs> <laughs> he said James said guy in a cockpit and I honestly heard guy in <laughs> and yeah Bill, right. the guy behind Goldfinger you do see him in a few more shots around this yeah. sequence he is eventually lying on the floor I think it's when Goldfinger goes flying through the window yeah which wouldn't happen no it would but I'm so glad it does obviously it would but I want it to Two, the two improbable this, deaths of, of the, the golden girl, and then, and then two improbable deaths. There's about seven or eight well, in this movie. I mean, this, but, this whole know. film is just MythBusters. I mean, yeah. <laughs> but that's part of the James Bond world. And you know, you know, when when we were talking about Thunderball on the on that commentary, and you said, you know, if you if you had the kind of uh, uh, Black Mirror world where you could kind of just yes. spend your death, yes. Um, that's part of that. This, this is what happens in James Bond's universe. This is the physics of it, and that's part of why I love it because it's not about. It doesn't have to be accurate. It just has to be this. Um, well, you know, it's I, not being know, accurate. It. it has to have like an internal consistency, um, and I can't explain. Yeah, I think that, it has to have its own um, logic. And no, I know yeah. what you mean. Like you know, as long as lo- as long as a film follows its own internal logic, then it's fine. Yeah, but. Um, Meanwhile, but I think that yeah, in the original shots of the, the of the model going down, you could see the um, strings, but like they've like erased them in future home video. Damn you, George Lucas! Damn you! Yeah. Yes, we want strings. Yeah, add strings. Don't take them away. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, no, you don't. <laughs> this is no time to be rescued. Well, we'll have another rough sex session now. Oh, Jesus. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Bill, when we finish all these, just like crop, crop you guys out, out of context. Ruin all your reputations. <laughs> <laughs> we have no reputations after doing oh. this. Have you seen? Okay. The, have you seen the the, the stuff on reviews? The, have, you, have you seen the stuff on Twitter? Ben, who was that guy the other day who, who was abusing us for 
Uh, I don't know. For, for, I can't remember which, which film it was that we'd been quite respectful towards and thought we were. Oh, yeah. yeah, oh, yeah, Casino Royale. <laughs> it's like, what the actual fuck? What? <laughs> I know. We were quite nice about it, I thought. Um, so, everyone on everyone who, who was on it was uh, loved it. Mm. I, I, I think, yeah, we, we yeah. Yeah. like to point out uh, the humorous aspects of all the films, but come on, to uh, to, to say that we, we're shit talking the, the, the Bond films is ridiculous. My my final trivia note is like in the end titles of the version we're watching, it says the end of Goldfinger, but James Bond will be back in Thunderball. But in the original UK ver- version, it said, but James Bond will be back on Her Majesty's Secret Service. That that's was right. because oh. in September of 64, that's when yeah. Broccoli and Saltzman cut the deal with Kevin McClory to do Thunderball. Huh. In, in interviews to release, Connery said Majesty's is next. Yeah. Hmm. Oh, that would have yeah. been a weird choice. Mm-hmm. Huh. It would have been. Except but... they wouldn't. But Piss Gloria didn't exist at that point. Um, obviously, the mountain did. But, it I mean, would have been a Piss, lot Piss... difficult to do, yes. Um... Yeah, so it would have been harder to film, um, definitely. Mm. Um, because they were they were only into, they, were, they weren't even finished on construction um, on, on the Piss Gloria restaurant when, when they started filming in, what, you know, 68 or whatever it was. So... Uh, you know, they wouldn't have been able to film it in that same location. So it would have been interesting to see how they would have tackled it. The Intels also have technical advisor Charles Ruchon. That was Broccoli's Mr. Fix-It with the U.S. military. And that's the in-joke on the building at Fort Knox. It said, welcome to General Ruchon. So. But um, just talking about the, the theft of the DB5 and the who lived there, he had a collection of Ferraris and he also used to uh, look after or um, I don't know if it was a kind of museum there uh, of, of Ferraris and they, they used to have open <laughs> and look at all the Ferraris sometimes, which I, I did sometimes. And at some point in the early 90s, I think it was, somebody broke in overnight and stole a number of these Ferraris, which, and they weren't his, I, I don't think. Uh, it was like two or three in, uh, worth millions. Uh, they were very, very rare, like, you know, hmm. a handful of them. And uh, uh, it later turned out a few years afterwards that it was a put-up job. He had run out of money. Um they had all been uh, cut up and uh, sent to the scrapyard, um, as per in Goldfinger, and uh, and uh, he spent a few years inside uh, for for yeah for an insurance yeah. job. Yeah. So. Yeah. 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 yeah, yeah. Yeah. Oh, for an insurance job, right? Yeah, that's the kind of angle that the investigators that we may or may not have spoken to about it um, raised when the bits of original gadgetry turned up a few years ago at auction. 
I, I think and they're all like, they, they, can they we trace this back them. to I, I the car that got stolen? Back even, yeah. um, so one of the right, things yeah. I, sh- I should just say about this, what happened at the end of the production, uh, they sold the cars back to um, to Aston Martin, uh, who stripped out the gadget. Oh, nobody and in this the car, cars, will they? Yes. Um, which is... <laughs> yeah. So... so the, so they went back onto the to the roster of of Aston Martin, uh, who obviously took out all of the stuff, and then uh, John Steers is kind of gadgetry, and then <laughs> yeah, exactly, and then which is which is totally fucking bizarre if you think about it. Um, but then when they were subsequently repurchased, so the one that is oh god, I'm going to have to say it. Sorry, Bill, the one that's featured in the Man from Uncle film. <laughs> Uh, down your drinks everyone I, I want to know that Claxton did not go off because of me you didn't say it you didn't, nobody said it Benson um, so exactly. the reason, one, of the, one of the interesting things about that car is that is one of the cars that was used I think um, it is a promotional car from Thunderball that was sold back to, uh, to Aston Martin um, and then had all its gadgets stripped out of it it was then re-bought um, by a private uh, individual who then had another company put the gadgets in. So that's why in um, the Man from Uncle Booty and and the Cannibal Run, you can see that the gadgets right. look slightly different. That car was owned by a Hollywood film professional named Robert Short, who is um, I don't want the clocks to go off, but that's that's who owned it at the time of the uh, filming of that TV movie. So, and so he sold it off later. Yeah, so going back to those gadgets that were under auction, um, I think enough time has passed now that we can tell the story that it it actually transpired that they turned out that they were recreations. And somebody was trying to sell them as original things. And that's what what caught the eye of the insurance company back in the day. Right, and I also know that... You know, it wasn't one crime, but another crime. Right, and I know with the uh, Ian Fleming Foundation, foundation they take a lot of care making sure it's the original they have the original uh, vehicle numbers etc etc so for anyone who hasn't got time to read dave warrell's amazing book uh on uh, the db5 uh, which, which is about to get knocked off probably you know? which is yeah it, it's a, a phenomenal book if anyone has a, an opportunity to read it i think you can probably still get it um online um somewhere um I have done a very tight uh, article on the history of the, the DB5, which is, which is uh, I think, about a page and a half. So you can read that. Uh, it will save you. Uh, it's like cliff notes, if you like, for, for, the, for the history of DB5. So if, uh, if anyone's interested, I'll put a link uh, to that article when, we, when this goes live. Thanks, Ben. I mean, I, I do think now that unless you are willing to put that level of research in, which DB5 was which? I mean, it's almost like Lenin's body now, isn't it? I mean, <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. It's it's definitely the, the you know my uncle's uh, axe or whatever it is. So I was just going to say, especially now when I wrote that article, that was before uh, Skyfall came out. Um, so I'll you know I'll have to amend it for all of the the extra DB5s that uh, get thrown in there. So. There's a lot more to kind of read about. I was about to say, Guy Hamilton told a story again on the DVD home video extras about getting a letter from somebody who'd like noticed like 
different sets of tires on the DB5 in Goldfinger, an indication there were like two separate cars. And like uh, he claimed, and good old days those two, exactly. And he claimed to send him a, a letter. Says, "Oh, very good." And like they were like, these were like, however many deliberate mistakes we put into the movie. And well, then, as well. yeah. that's that's probably like BS from Hamilton. But regardless, it's like yeah, it's. That 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 that's how movie making goes. They they always have more yeah. cars. It's like we do we do the modern equivalent, which is to put a typo in a tweet to find out who's really reading them. Yeah, there so, you go. So the so Bill, the, there are two there are two cars that are used in Goldfinger. One is the original uh, Aston Martin DB5 prototype. The other one is the first kind of production model DB5. Uh, so that literally like the first DB5. Um, and one of them is a beauty car which is the uh, prototype and it's the first DB5 uh, that gets uh, gets the gadgets. So there are two vehicles and they do look slightly different. There are slight differences because, um, as I said, the prototype uh, was more of a, of a DB4 um, kind of uh, with some tweaks. So that's that is the, if you look hard, you can spot a, a quite a few different kind of things, one of which is the... Um, the sun visor, uh, which I meant to say when we were watching, is you know removed from from the uh, from the car, so Connery doesn't keep bumping his forehead on it. Um, which is which, when you watch it back, you can see that. Anyway. Isn't it a little sad that the legacy of this film is like the chassis number of a car, like arguably <laughs> arguably? Well, no, I'm serious. I mean, if you think about all the elements of this film, the one that's most reused. Yeah trodden over, researched, written about is the bloody car. Um, not Bond in the film. I think Connery's performance as Bond is completely washed over by all the other elements. Mm. Um, well, yeah, uh, yeah. It's, a, it's a fairly laconic performance though, isn't it? I mean, uh, you know, it's, uh, he's certainly in his, his kind of his top of his game in the sense that he's, he's very comfortable he's also in Bond's shoes. He's starting to get a little over it, isn't he? Isn't this the beginning of the end for him? Like he held out the money well, and whatnot, well, the whole thing about going home well, with a headache. Well, I think yeah, specifically yeah. he had been paid something like $200,000 for Marty and was like originally not supposed to be paid that much for Goldfinger. It's like, guys, like I'm your star. I should be paid, paid more. I'm like, yeah, this is probably like the beginning of the, not the beginning of the end, but like the, yeah. I certainly he, think he in terms of his, 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 yeah. it's a bit like the Daniel Craig era. Yeah. By the third movie, he was already kind of like looking for the exit. Yeah. Well, I, I I think this is where certainly where he started to get a bit upset about his his salary and the whole as Phil just tried to point out was he was certainly was, upset a year later when Dean Martin got a million dollars a million dollar point two yeah. for the silencers which did yeah. like much less box office than uh, Goldfinger or Thunderball so like yeah like I want to be a partner and then like Broccoli it's like you can, under, you can understand why um, you oh, know you want, we, we want points on the, on the back end of something like you know Thunderball when you think that you know what the, what the no, producers would have taken yeah. Yeah. But it, it's, it's lucky like they that. didn't make Daniel Craig do a film a year 
though for five. <laughs> well, that's that that was because they were incapable of making a film. Year, no, so. I'm sure I know, but <laughs> he, he, his reply would have been would have involved a lot of f's. Mm, definitely. Yeah. So, like, just some technical glitches. We lost you for a bit, Phil. But do you want to chime in on any of the stuff that we kind of rolled through? Oh, no, I just. Uh, uh, I, oh, she's back! Hi. I suggested we shit talk you. So, please always mind really me for whatever entertainment you can at all times. <laughs> uh, no, I wrote about Goldfinger once, and, and to me, the, the the moment when he just sort of does that little eyebrow thing after the thing explodes and everyone freaks out but him, that's sort of the birth of the Bond stereotype. He's kind of a coiled snake in the first two films, and this is the one where all of the stereotypes of Bond being like the unflappable guy sort of kind Ooh. of cal- coalesces and maybe calcifies, I think, to some degree. Uh, and everything you guys said yeah. before is on point about he's just sort of a passive observer for so much of the film that – uh, it's, I think this movie's, you know, uh, it, it's a shame that this movie became the, uh, I'm not going to say gold standard, became the standard <laughs> bearer for how a Bond formula should go because uh, it's it set it down yeah. a path, I think. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, I think, yeah, I think you're 100% right, Phil. And I think, you know, in some senses, although people don't necessarily like Connery, or, uh, or, or Connery's Bond in, in From Russia with Love, I think there's more going on there yes. in terms of performance and, uh, and there's more stakes, there's more intrigue, even though, you know, what, what Goldfinger is proposing is, you know, it's going to have massive repercussions on the economy, etc. Probably, you know, the stakes feel bigger in From Russia with Love somehow. It feels more espionage where this does feel more travelogy and kind of just like laconic. Oh, yeah. is, is part of that from Russia with Love is a direct attack on Bond, whereas in this it's like, well, the economy of a foreign country would be affected. Right. Well, yeah. I, I, I will actually take it a step further. The second you see the DB5 with all the gadgets, it was never the same after mm-hmm. that. The whole Ian Fleming espionage world took a back seat from that point on. Uh, there's a very good article you should read about that um, if you get a chance. <laughs> <laughs> um, as to where the, the origins of that car uh, may have come from. But it definitely, you know, when you read the book, um, you know, there were just small things like reinforced bumpers and, you know. With, um, with, with Goldfinger, the DB5 became Bond's Excalibur. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. And, um, you know, I, I think there's one of the things that the questions that kind of get raised about Bond is like, as we go through uh, uh, and Bond develops as, as, a, as a character, um, in a, like as a, he's, a, he's something of an anachronism in this modern age because he's a character that's designed in 1953 or created in 1953 and now exists here in 2020. Uh, so, Obviously, he has to move with the times, and we start to kind of strip him of certain things, you know, certain actions, certain attributes. Um, and at what point, uh, you know, people sort of say, well, Bond isn't Bond without smoking cigarettes, and Bond isn't Bond unless he, you know, he's a womanizer. And I would argue that these things, um, kind of as Phil have said, have just become kind of tokenistic kind of things that kind of like make Bond a bit more of a cipher. Uh, oh, and they don't no, really—they no don't really no speak to. Yeah, 
no better demonstrator than in the Pierce Brosnan era, where, where they used them and then took them away. Yeah. Right. And, and, like and that's one and, filmy yeah. smoking, the next it's a filthy habit, or the other way around. Yeah, because it's, like, you know, it's, yeah. like, it's, uh, it's one of my complaints about the con- continuation novels is that where um, Bond's traits, by written by Ian Fleming, uh, happened over uh, fourteen books, you know, twelve novels, and then how uh, eight, nine uh, short stories, whatever it is. And and so you, you kind of drip fed them, and so you get to know him over over time. But then every continuation novel, it's like everything at once, poof, and it's it's too much. And it, it's the same in the mm. films. It's like every yeah. film since the the um, Dalton era, it's like vodka martinis and Aston Martin, and you know, yeah. it, it's just everything, and it's just takes, too much. Takes on the era of fan fiction somewhat. Yep. Absolutely, that yes. So I've got a question for you, Lisa, because um, you have a um, captive audience of young people who might not necessarily have seen the movies before. Mm-hmm. How do they take to this film? Considering this was for, as Phil pointed out, this was for the longest time the the uh, the flag bearer for the franchise in the popular culture. How, how does how does the modern current generation take to it the first time they see it? You know, that's a really good question. Um, we usually in my class go from Doctor No to Goldfinger. From Russia with Love doesn't make the course. I can't teach every film. It's a suggested film, but From Russia with Love is not a required film. I think they, in many ways, they like it because it's it feels more Bond esque than Doctor No. Um, I think they have some issues with, as I've already mentioned, some of the sexual politics and and the rape culture that is promoted through it. Um, But they still find it to be a little slow. Um, And here's the thing. It's not as if they're watching it in a vacuum. So they usually have a lecture for me talking about how we're having the evolution of the Bond formula. This is considered to be, you know, one of the first true James Bond films where everything's sort of clicking on all the cylinders from you know, the title song to the imagery that we get to the characterization of Bond to his relationship with the, with his sort of his Bond girl or, or Bond woman in the film. Um, so they have context going into it. I don't think I could speak to how young people watch this film in a vacuum without that. Um, and of course, they're writing film journals for me. And so uh, they're given a personal impression section where they usually they're usually just caught up on sexual violence more so than anything else. Um, that's my major takeaway from from that lesson from that unit. At the end of the course, does the majority of them come back and say this was the best one? No. Right. Um, no, gosh, no. Well, right. can I make what's, a- what's the best can- one? What happens is by the time we get to the Brosnan era, they find it a little bit more refreshing. They find that the women are more empowered. Uh, the pace is more attuned to what they've grown up with. A lot of them might be 90s babies. But then we get to the Daniel Craig era, and they like Daniel Craig as James Bond. And so that tends to be the overarching element. Um, and, they're, and they are used to other films like um, sort of the Batman films of the time. Um, so, so, so yeah, I, I feel as though they lean more towards the later films just because they're more aligned with what they're used to cinematically pace wise and so forth. Can I make a quick point about trying to adapt characters who've been around for decades? Um, Bond obviously falls in this category, but, um, anytime you 
look at characters of long standing, you have to examine their origins, but you have to also examine how they are adapted to the times. So I'm going to give another quick comic book example. Captain America was created by one, maybe two Jewish guys who like really felt like Nazi Germany needed to be like opposed and the US wasn't there yet. So like the first issue of Captain America in 1941 had Captain America punching out Hitler. The US was not at war with Germany yet. And like if you went to Captain America comics in the 40s, you would find offensive stereotypes, particularly among about Japanese. But successive interpretations, like, you know, try to interpret the core part of the characters. And, you know, it's like Bond is in that category, numerous comic book characters in that category, uh, Sherlock Holmes, others. It's like you you try to capture the core and bring them into the times, even when they're period pieces. So, um, yeah, it's the ones that endure are the ones that you know appeal to successive successive generations. Yeah, there's an, another thing I guess, which is that uh, Goldfinger. You know, in four years, it will be its 60th anniversary. Yes. And uh, if you think about 1964, um, if you rewound uh, to watch a film that was 60 years uh, prior, it would have been 1904. And, a uh, silent movie. <laughs> yeah, 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 and and the it, 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 it's it, in many respects it's it's not a very good comparison because the um, the change in cinema uh, then was probably much much bigger than it has been in the the subsequent sixty years since the Bond films, but uh, it's it, it's a large chunk of time and it, it, yeah. it's difficult to it's difficult if you're younger to to actually put yourself back in in those times i think and the other thing is were the people in 1964 going oh, i can't that that film from 1904 is my favorite yeah, you know, <laughs> it, yeah that, that's where that's where it doesn't work actually no they were not and this i've had this this discussion with other people about boomers tend to hold on to things from their childhood and I'm of that generation. So, um, yeah, it's, it's like, you know, times change, like great characters can appeal across multiple generations, but it's, you know, I don't want to go deeper than that. It's just like I, I see people about oh, like this, like violates Fleming. It's like, well, yeah, you know, I, it's like, I, but I, but I, like, but like Tarzan has been like interpreted beyond what Edgar Rice Burroughs originally. Yeah, wrote. I, 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 I was going to bring up another character who, who's been interpreted in, in in different eras for for decades, which is Sherlock Holmes. And, yes. And, yeah. you know, it, it, it's, uh, you know, it, he, he, he's not a, a direct comparison with Bond, but, you know, the, the, there is a similarity. And, you know, it's, he, he was written in the Victorian era. And uh, I don't know when the first uh, um, Sherlock Holmes film was. Early. But, 
Yeah, yeah. There, there, in, in 1939, there was a um, Basil Rathbone film done as a um, period piece. Mm-hmm. I forget the title. And then in the 40s, they like they time shift shifted him. Yeah, the, into the, those, the those present ones day. I'm more familiar with, yeah, yeah, yeah. But you know, and then they like eventually went back to the you know original time period. But like, it's still Sherlock Holmes and Basil Rathbone did both versions yeah. uh, specifically, yeah. and and other people have as well. Nineteen sixteen um, was the first Sherlock film. <laughs> wow! Yeah, we we thank you for your horror speciality. Hey, Google too. <laughs> Google it, man. <laughs> so, um, are we now living in the post Goldfinger's the best James Bond film era? Yes, yeah. I would say that. I think there was a few years a little while back where you kind of had to feel self-confident to stand up and say Goldfinger's not the best Bond film and still be considered a Bond fan. But I think I've, it's I, I've actually more socially like, acceptable now to say, yeah, no. This is, this is not a major step, but like I always like Thunderbolt better than Goldfinger. <laughs> Um, because well, I, it was funny because I didn't see Goldfinger until 72. <clears throat> um Eight years after it was released, it was like the last of the you know the early films I saw, and it's like, well, this isn't as good as some of the others. Um, so my next question was going to be, if that's true, why 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 has that changed? Because the film is the same film. The film's the same film. Not, nobody's. I think. I, I, I think. I, I think it was. I think it was questions that the media was asking twenty years ago. Hmm. Uh, I, I think that influenced it a lot because uh, I, I, I remember like early 2000s and uh, I, don't, I, I don't know who in the UK was asking what the best Bond film was and, and, I, I, and I, I was thinking about it at the time and, uh, and I, I don't remember what, what my answer was at the time and I, I think maybe I, I wrote about it for MI6, I, I can't remember and uh but it it was uh in the early 2000s certainly it was it it was when uh it it was being talked about so and and i i think that is is the kind of um tipping point well the beginning of the end for it (laughs) well well this is what i think is the case it's like goldfinger made bond a phenomenon but yeah, it doesn't it mean undoubtedly but it, yeah. do, but it doesn't mean it's the best no, film no, sure i i would argue for marshall with love is better i would argue thunderball is better but because of the timing because of the world as it was oh it okay. that's what that that's why it became a big thing but it doesn't mean it's the best and I've thought that even be you know even earlier than the two thousands. I thought it like in the eighties and nineties. But you know, uh, I've just I've just had a thought which were which is related to what we were talking about the D, the DB five earlier. And is it as simple as uh, that until the um, in, until the last few films, the, the DB5 hadn't appeared in that many films. Now it's been massively overused and so over and, over exaggerated. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and and so it 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 
a lot of it was the iconic. I can't say the word. The- well, and, and I'll I'll take it a step further. It's like, okay, it was the DB five was parodied as early as 1965 in the Beverly Hillbillies, and I'm sorry for English folks. We've, we've and, yeah, I know, but that's the point. It's like as early as that, it was a you know subject of parody, and like. And so it's like in Thunderball, and it got hyped for Thunderball, but it's like not in Thunderball nearly as much as is in Goldfinger. But it, and it, then it like disappeared for a while, and then oh, like, wow, like Goldeneye, right? Like, yeah. Well, yeah. well, well, I was about to say within, um, well, with Aston Martin in general, it's like okay, there's a different model in Majesties, and it's like appears strictly as a joke in Diamonds, and then it totally disappears, and then then you see it in Goldfinger. I'm sorry. It's interesting, eye. isn't it? Isn't it interesting how you know we've we've had several different vehicles that have been fairly iconic. You know, you think about Wet Nelly, uh, you think about the Winter Rides, um, you know, V8 Vantage. You you think about all of these different like cars that have the invisible kind of stu- the invisible car, which is you know just that's easy to bring back. It's sitting in my front drive right now. Yeah. And, oh, I thought it was in my garage. You sneak. <laughs> um, and one so, of the so, yeah. moves they made with the, the Spy Love Me was like to go with an entirely different car, the car slash submarine. Right. Um, well, I just uh, what I was trying to say, Bill, is is that essentially it's interesting that they've kind of like zeroed in on this one particular thing, this one particular model as being the one that. Um, you know, identifies Bond yes, more than say absolutely because they, basically they they seem to have distilled Goldfinger down to DB5 and, and maybe the public has distilled Goldfinger down to DB5. And, That's what I was yeah. getting at when we wrapped up the film. It's like it's I think it's a sad thing that this film has now devolved into being the one with the, that started the DB5. Yeah, yeah. Right, because yeah, when they yeah. when they restarted the series with Goldeneye, it's like we have to get the DB5 in there, yeah, and it's it like, wasn't like introducing the Aston Martin DB5 driven by Ian Fleming's James Bond, no. which is I think how the poster for No Time to Die is. Right. Can I ask a question about car culture? So I'm not big into cars. My dad loves different cars. I don't know if it's a generational thing, and I could be wrong. Maybe cars just meant more to people years ago, like my students, the cars don't even like register with them. Most of them when they watch these films. Right. And so like, I, I just wanted to maybe throw out that maybe our perception of car culture yeah, I, 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 more back then while our technology has just moved on to like, we're more into cell phones and computers. and high. I, I think, I think that's an interesting question actually, Lisa, because uh, from the simple fact that when I, uh, when I was younger, I could recognize cars and, uh, mm-hmm. I knew what what make and what mm-hmm. uh, model they were. Now many cars look exactly the same. All the same. And, and I think I think a lot of it is that there is that cars look much blander than, than they used to. And also, you know, I was about to say, Lisa. The answer is short answer is yes, because they used to in the old days. They used to make a lot of cosmetic changes, like. You know the engine really didn't change. All you know the key parts didn't change, but they like made a lot of cosmetic changes. And um, if you watch old TV shows like 
when cops are you know are calling in stuff, they they have specific model years. Like it's a '67 Chevy, blah blah blah. The model I, years. I know, but but the point is, like today, like you could not tell the difference between a two thousand Ford Mondeo two thousand seven going past. Yeah, I, yeah well, I, I can't right. even tell if it's a Ford or, a, or whatever. Um, alternate theory about the cars. What, sure. what what was Bond driving when the filmmaker was 11 years old? Uh, I think that ties in parts of it. I think that's why there's a convertible submarine in the new movie, because Carrie Fukunaga remembers the Lotus going underwater. Um, right. Sam Mendes is literally on record saying he put the DB5 tricked out version in Skyfall because he had it as a toy as a kid. Uh, and so once, once the film starts to be made by people who grew up with the, uh, the films, it starts to reflect their personal favorite eras and their, and their personal sort of, uh, you know, what they're drawn to. Whereas, you know, uh, live and let die guy Hamilton is just, uh, you know, wants him to be in a flashy car. He doesn't have, a he started the fucking, uh, Aston Martin thing and he doesn't have a particular affinity for a car. He's not nostalgic for the thing he created. He wants to use something new and exciting. I, right, I want yeah. Bond 26 to be directed by one of Lisa's students. <laughs> <laughs> hey, I got names. <laughs> well, and just real quick, I mentioned how when uh, the first draft of Tomorrow Never Dies, Bruce, Bruce Fairstein said, car, whatever we get. Like, because he doesn't know, because that's a business decision. So, yeah, I think, Calvin, you're in that group of um, cars, eh? Right. It's, well, it's like guns. Like, is it big? Well, I was, yeah. Like, you know, car. Yeah. No. I mean, I like the DB5. It's fine. I. I. I don't. Uh. You know. I. I. I think Goldfinger. I think one of the reasons why it has uh persevered, and I think as David mentioned earlier on in the early two thousands, that's when I was like, you know, twelve years old. I was becoming a Bond fan, leading up to Dine of the Day, and there were all these programs about what is the best Bond film, and all these rankings and whatnot, and uh, top ten Bond moments. Guess what? The public votes. They vote for the laser going up. Uh, James Bond in uh in the torture scene earlier on. So. I, I, going I, up, James Bond. Yeah. <laughs> well, I, you know, I um, I, so so I I grew up with the polls and all this kind of stuff, all the books. It was always gold standard and this kind of stuff. And I think when you look at if you are going to reduce a Bond film down to the elements, if you are going to get your Excel sheet out and you know you have your column for Bond, right? Connery's great, yes, ten out of ten. If you're going to have your column for Bond girls, Pussy Galore, yes, ten out of ten. Bond villains, Goldfinger, ten out of ten. Odd Job, ten. Out, you know, it it, it sort of. Um, I, I think because it excels in all of the checklist elements yeah. of what you think a Bond film should be, that's why it perseveres so much in the public consciousness. I, I, I don't want to be too harsh on it because I do really enjoy the film overall and I think it is a really entertaining ride but as a story it's it's really lacking it is kind of just uh oh we are just going to kind of meander around for a bit bond doesn't really do much and i like to see him do stuff uh and and i think that might be why it falters in uh this day and age because people have accessibility to it immediately and you can kind of watch it and go like huh well Maybe it's not all that right. great, whereas opposed to the talking heads that you had on TV shows and the people writing books who, when I was growing up, it was books written by guys who all had the same story about seeing this film in cinemas mm-hmm. when they were kids. And that yeah. means something, and that's great. And not to take away from that at all, um, as we've talked about a lot on this podcast, nostalgia and when you see these films in formative years, it does have an influence on 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 your outlook. Um, yeah. But... Well, for, I, I, Sorry, go on. 
I was going to say, kind of, yeah, the top trumps of Bond, like I think, is the way you were trying to say, like villains, henchmen, women, mm. locations, yeah. right? Yeah, Goldfinger comes out, but there aren't there aren't top trumps for like story, plot, yes. agency. No, right? exactly. Yeah. I think and, that's where the, 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 the kind of like Roger Moore hosts the greatest clips of Bond ITV special kind of stuff that you're talking about, which was mm. like on the fourth anniversary. They didn't get below the sexiest girl, most villainous villain threatening henchman pole, right? I and hate, never went I hate like these storylines and get to that bit, right? Which yeah. is, uh, <laughs> exactly. And if Broccoli and Salzman really wanted to get into the American market, they more than succeeded. So, yeah. 50 million, of, 50 million yeah. tickets sold at a dollar a piece back yeah. in 1964. Yeah. It was easy to work out the box office then. How many people came? 50 million. All right, you made 50 million. Right. Yeah. <laughs> God, you maths whiz. <laughs> That's right. Didn't need box yeah. office mojo back in those days. Yeah. Should we just do our, our final thoughts on it? Yes. Because uh, I'm only to yep. wrap up. Ben, do you want to final thought? Yeah, uh, well, okay. Um, just just as quickly as I can, and I can't, I think very much mirroring uh, what, what Calvin was saying, I do greatly enjoy this film. There is a lot that uh, resonates for me in this, and particularly it's one of those kind of childhood memory films as well. Um, it's very colourful. It's beautifully designed. Um, you know, great, great um, set design and uh, costuming and all of that. So it's... it's you know, it feels really great, but it doesn't really hold up to much kind of critical examination. Um, and certainly as we've gone through the years, uh, there are certain scenes that, uh, you, you know, really don't, um, don't work very well for me. And, um, and, and I think, you know, just the fact that Bond has zero agency in this and, the, uh, and, and relies really on uh, a very kind of, I know it's done this, I know this is from the novel, but, um, you know the turning of, uh, of of a lesbian to, to you know by, by his magic penis um, it does does kind of like uh, sour me to this film, but um, I can still watch it. I can still enjoy it, but I, I do feel like it's much more of a kind of a background film for me now rather than uh, something that I, I really kind of connect and engage to. And the theory that um, I think there's more of a theoretical discussion of what you were talking about having sex with a lesbian and changing her sexual orientation. We call that corrective rape. And it's something that's actually quite prominent in some countries in this world. So I just wanted to throw it out there that it is now actually being termed, whereas years ago we didn't have that terminology in place. Hmm. I'll say, I'll say this is, it may be the most important film in the series. It's not the best film in the series, but it is, as I said earlier, it's like the one that made it a phenomenon. So it, uh, is always going to be talked about. Yeah, uh, for me, uh, I owned the Corgi Aston Martin DB5 before I saw the film, and uh, so I was thrilled as a kid to see it on TV in 1970, whatever it was. Um, and, you know, I... Uh, Part of me loves it still, and uh, part of me, part of it bores me. So, uh, <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I, it, it, it's a film I've seen far too many times to have any kind of objective opinion about. Yeah, yeah, I get that. 
I've come back around on it. I was pretty burnt out on it because anytime there's a marathon or anything, Goldfinger seems to always get that prime time slot. And uh, it was the one that was always on the most in the in the heyday of cable, I think. But uh, now that I kind of curate it for myself and watch the ones I want to watch, it's it's. I think I called Thunderball a hangout movie last week. And this one has kind of fallen into that space for me. It's just a, a film I like to just put on and, and luxuriate in once in a while. But it's, it's not... Uh, it's not as compelling as uh, maybe what might even my top 10 at this point. David, Lisa? Oh, Lisa, you've gone to David. Lisa? Um, well, first of all, Phil, I love your vocabulary. Just wanted to get the descriptors that you use. Just wanted to give a shout out to, to your vocabulary. <laughs> Thanks. Um, I'm, I'm a huge fan of vocabulary, so I'm just like, yeah, <laughs> talk more. Um, I would say <laughs> Goldfinger is interesting because – you know, my dad really loves Goldfinger. And when we talk about it, he always talks about how this is the film that felt the most Bond-esque. And so I look through it um, through those eyes in relation to my dad. And again, nostalgia changes the way that we see films. And I think depending on who we were and where we made contact with Bond, maybe that influences our impression of Goldfinger. The one thing that I just wanted to talk about, so instead of giving my personal impression, I'm just going to go rogue here. I love Pussy Galore's clothing. I know that, you know, we've talked about Bond and his suits, but like that little purple, like crisscross shirt that she has or the suit coats with the gold underneath. Yes. I think she looks absolutely fantastic. I think that her body is both covered. I think that she comes across as professional at moments. There are moments where it, it frames her figure, but I don't feel as though she is sort of put on display like, um, you know, Honey Rider was, for instance, in 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 Doctor No, sure. and that's something that I really appreciate about her. And I think that that has to go with Honor Blackman's legacy, um, and and her Avengers legacy as well. I think that she's just played some really strong, capable, competent women um, across her her acting career. And so to see her in a film like Goldfinger minus the barnyard scene, you know, I really hold her in, in a lot of high esteem and high regard. I think she looks beautiful, but she also shows us capability and competency. And just to plug an essay that's in my book for her, for his eyes, only the women of James Bond, Ross Carlin came up with this really fascinating argument where he talks about he has a passion for magic and he wanted to blend it with his love of reading gender and James Bond. And so he has this theory where the Bond girl and he uses pussy galore. He uses Pem Bouvier from License to Kill are basically like the magician's assistant. And so they're there to sort of attract attention, but really they do a lot of the hidden work behind. And so as we were talking about, you know, pussy galore and, and her call to the CIA informing them, it's, it's work that we don't see on screen. And so James Bond sort of gets credit because he's the one who's on screen but oftentimes the magician's assistant like a lot of the women in the bond films do a lot of the work behind the scenes so i just wanted to give him credit for just kind of a fascinating take um, when it comes to reading the bond franchise and i always do promote people who come to the franchise from very different places very different lenses and gives us and give us sort of original readings of of the series so from my dad to the costumes mm. to ross carlin i did not answer your question of my take but that's where we were <laughs> <laughs> well, actually, just to reinforce your point, at what point Goldfinger tells Pussy to uh, um, dress more comfortably, you know, to, re to reassure the CIA guys who are keeping the place under uh, surveillance. So she goes from like a pantsuit to a blouse and a pants. It's like it's not that big a change. So mm -hmm. it's like not like she's like slinking out in an 
evening dress or anything like that. So that's that's a subtle um, a subtle reminder of the uh, things that you just talked about, Lisa. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So my takeaway from today was something that we didn't do, which was spot anything new <laughs> in the film. And well, I think that says us? a lot. What are you going to find? Well, uh, well, I, I, I spot something new. I spot something I hadn't seen seen before. What was there's, that? Uh, at the garage uh, where he where he stops off to drop Tilly, right? There's people camping in the background. I've never noticed that before. There's like a full tent, and somebody is just like camping next to a garage for some reason. Okay. Well, you didn't well, mention um, it. I didn't get a chance. <laughs> no, to I message. could. I I wanted to. <laughs> I didn't get a chance to uh, mention this, but there was a draft where oh, really? uh, where uh, Pussy Galore was uh, naked and painted gold right. dancing before the gangsters oh, no. in one of the yeah. drafts of the script. So right. um, my, my point I was trying to get to is um, it's it's been overwatched. Yeah, I think mm. I think so. <laughs> right, and um, find me a TV marathon that they don't do all the films that they don't cut Goldfinger. Right, I mean it's that they cut Goldfinger. So it's, like, it's so it's the lowest common denominator film for any kind of audience, yeah. I think. And well, uh, a couple of years ago on Spanish TV, they they had um, a they had all the Bond films to stream, and well, when I say they had all the Bond films, they they had. All the Eon Bond films, plus they had Never Say Never Again, and they had, um, I can't remember if they had the the um, Casino Royale 67, but they had the 54 Casino Royale. But one film they didn't have was Thunderball. Hmm. And it was like, what? What? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's got it up there, right, with Skip and Goldfinger. <laughs> Thunderball um, Erasure. Uh, yeah, I know. To... Yeah, it's a thing. I think, I, and I think Calvin, one of the things you said really struck with me, which was like the two th- the early two thousands, where we were coming on the fortieth anniversary, and there was this glut of stuff. Dino, the day coming out fortieth anniversary, and you're absolutely right. All the people behind those things grew up as Goldfinger was their entry point to the franchise as a kid, mm. and I think what happened around that era was. Everybody was told that Goldfinger is the best James Bond film because mm-hmm. it was just like positive reinforcement everywhere you went. And I think a lot of people just fell into that. Well, of course, Goldfinger's got to be the right film. And I don't think there was a whole lot of critical thinking going on mm. around that time, um, which we've I think been forced to because the Craig era reboot in recent, you know. Well, I, I, I'd months. say generally there's not a lot of critical thinking going on. <laughs> well, I, I, it's I, not I, just about Bond. <laughs> I think it's telling that on Her Majesty's Secret Service has emerged as like we were talking earlier on about like, well, what is the new Goldfinger? What is the one that people look back to in the classic era? And I think, well, yeah, I I, I think Majesty's Secret Service also gets a lot of um, attention these days. And I think a big part of that is to do with Bond has an emotional journey in that film. He has a character arc. uh, And we don't get that in any Connery film. He starts and ends the films in exactly the same way. And uh, I think Majesty's Secret Service does hold up to critical overthinking. Um, I I think it's a very rich film for uh, text and subtext. Um, whereas in Goldfinger, it, it's you know it is a hangout film, like Phil says, a very it's, entertaining one. But. It's a veneer with Goldfinger, mm-hmm. isn't it? Mm. Um, I, I, often when like Goldfinger is written about, alchemy gets thrown out there, you know, because that's the whole yeah, mixing a bunch of yeah. 
pouring ingredients together to make gold, right? And in the Middle Ages, that's all we're trying to do. Um, I think it's a good metaphor for this film because it's taken a bunch of elements. Nobody really sat down, I don't think, and worked out that how what the outcome was going to be. Filmmaking is like they don't know what they've got until they finish no, it. I, a lot I, of the time. I, I think that is very that's very true. But uh, what they have try to do ever since is to yeah. pluck the elements and recreate yeah. the alchemy and fail. Yeah. Right. So can I give you a list? Guy mm-hmm. Hamilton directed a Bond film with Sean Connery in it. Production designed by Ken Adam. Score by John Barry. Mm. Adapting a Rika Fleming novel. Even with lasers in a US <laughs> with US locations. Right. Uh, Time is a forever. Mm. And Goldfinger. All those things are true. And in most polls, that's the best versus one of the worst. Well, and, and specifically so, when they were in pre-production on diamonds, they like we need another gold finger. That was like that's what I mean. So you've got yeah. that laundry list of elements, and you've got a wildly different result. And and like when it's like, oh, let's have Goldfinger's twin brother, which <laughs> actually goes back to Majesty's pre-production, but like it was like more serious with Diamonds pre-production. And it's like, yeah, it's like, ugh. Yeah, you know, just like I no. guess the point I'm making is I guess the point I'm making is don't do don't do relatives of arch villains. Right. Don't, I think don't, the point I'm trying to make is I don't think we should give too much credit to anybody for the result of the film because it was an accident. Yeah, you know, absolutely. In the early days, they didn't know what they were doing. It was only after Goldfinger that they tried to uh, to create a formula. But the ever since they've been trying to recreate that formula to a certain degree, and as the budgets go up and up and up, it's like um, the accountants get involved in trying to recreate that formula, and it, it, in the end, it, it should be an artistic decision, and the accountants are trying to make the artistic decisions for the. Artists. They're taking over all of MI6 these days. And <laughs> take another step further. With Goldfinger, you start off in terms of screenwriting with an American who had a long-standing relationship with one of the producers. And then like, well, we've taken this as far as we can go. Let's get another guy. And so you hire a British screenwriter who had a history with British intelligence. And then he does, you know, he takes it over the line. But he had some goofy ideas too. Like Dane had this idea in one scre- in one of his uh, drafts, like the the ending would have curtains come down, and then like Bond and Pussy would like take bows, and like oh, we're not going to do this. So you know, so they had they had the wisdom to not include that. But it, again, it's like you know, it's timing almost uh, accident at times. So so happy accident. That's how I'd classify Goldfinger. Yeah. It's a happy yeah. accident. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> like that, casino. Sums, that sums up Goldfinger perfectly, yeah. I mean, I mean can, you ima- can you imagine if Goldfinger ended with curtains coming down at that end at the end shot and then like <laughs> Connery and Honor Black and taking a bow like what the fuck is <laughs> that? Imagine if it if it had we wouldn't be sitting here. We literally wouldn't be sitting here today. Right. Um, but you know what they could do instead they could end it on like a show tunes version of the song. Instead. <laughs> All right, what do we want to do next week, guys? I think we should pick it rather than put it out to the vote. So we've got Spectre, you and twice, and um or, or leave it in the order of the votes. May just be done with the voting. Yeah. All right, we'll do that. 
I, I just don't think anybody wants to put their hand up and say we should do Spectre next, do they? Yeah. <laughs> I did. I'm going to say it because Come on. I, I, I want to get, I want to get it, I want to get it out of the way. I want to, I want to like rip it off like a band aid. Mm-hmm. Two hours. Sounds like Kevin uh, Ka- Calvin's washing, Calvin's washing his hair next Friday. <laughs> Calvin, Cal- Calvin, put it this way: Do you want it to be the last one that we do in the official series? That, that, yes. that that's a good point. <laughs> yeah. Uh, um, let's put up to. Let's put a vote one last time. I want to. I want it. I want it to end on a bang. Let's have a. Let's have a more. Yeah. I'm with man with the golden gun. I yeah. I'm with you. I'm with you. I, I can't wait one. until that becomes the standard Bond film. That should be. That should be our last Bond. That should be the last one we do, and we should get Spectre done next week, and then. Yep. You um, live twice. percent on this plan. If, if I right. know. This is not the last one, and there's more to look forward to. More. <laughs> All, right. <laughs> oh. All right. So we're doing Spectre twice, and then Golden Gun. All right. Agreed? Twice. <laughs> yes, yeah, Spectre twice. twice. Yeah, we're not doing Spectre yeah. twice. Slow motion. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. All right. Cool. Agreed. It's been it's I'm been educational. twice. <laughs> I think we're getting too old for wait to the next bomb film. Yeah, right. that may be true. Oh, uh, you, you guys have nothing on me. I'm twice Calvin's age. <laughs> and then on that dirty bombshell, Sorry. we should wrap it up. Right. Let's wrap Thank it up. You. Oh. Thanks very much. Uh, and this week we've got Ringo Starr to play us out. Uh, yes! The, uh, oh, my God. Star. Thank you, James. All right, you're welcome. See you on your EMFs, everyone. <laughs> Bye. It's a finger, hey don't shoot me, I'm just the bloody singer. Some folks like them bronze, others like them silver, but this man loves his gold, it is his favourite finger. Gold finger. Gold finger. Well, they never used it, said it was too modern. And also, because it had taken me seven years to write it, the film had come and gone.